Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Yes, my friends, it's time for our Wednesday night firesides chat, except for no fireside and little chatting, more yelling. So I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful week. FDRURL.com slash donate. Feel the juicy brain synapse goodness of donating to a worthy cause, which is really the spread of philosophy, reason, evidence, and peaceful parenting, universal ethics, nay, across this very benighted planet, fdrurl.com slash donate to help out the show. Please, please do it. We need you more than ever. And uh, with that, let's move on to the darn fine callers. Who do we have first, Mike? All right, up first is going to be David via phone. You wrote in and said, In your latest video, you expressed significant frustration for physicists sucking money from the government and stealing your daughter's future. I believe this opinion to be unfounded. We can waste money building stupid shit the same as we can waste money building – or waste money researching stupid shit. You cannot condemn one branch of academia and say that engineers are going to be able to do their job without those other branches. They are all interdependent. I must assume that you already know that and wish to know what it is that you are referencing that frustrates you so. I'm not sure what problem I would have with wasting money. Maybe you can, I I don't think I would, my complaint isn't that people waste money. I mean, people waste money by my definition all the time. They go to sports games, they buy unnecessarily expensive cars, unnecessarily big houses, Uh, they waste money all the time. The good news is that It doesn't matter what I think because it's their money. I'm sure that some of the things I spend money on, other people would consider a massive, massive waste of money as well. Do I need another microphone? Yes, I do. So uh, my issue is not with wasting money, and I'm not sure where you would have got that from. Okay. Your issue is with? My issue is with using force to steal the money. My issue is with using violence to coercively... um, change the ownership of the money or uh, using the monopoly of central banking to print money, uh, which, of course, hits the poor and those on fixed incomes the hardest through inflation. Uh, That is my issue is, um, you know, I I don't really care what the guy who steals my money does with it. Uh, I care that he's stolen it, you know, whether he wastes it or spends it wisely or anything like that doesn't really matter. So, um uh, what happens after the money is stolen is not philosophically relevant or morally relevant, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, well, uh, in the video, you just seem to be very frustrated with, um, I think you said something along the lines of physicists should find a real job and go make a product that people can buy and uh, in a free market like engineers. And yes. I was confused with this. Because it seems, it seems to me, the picture I have in my head is that physicists do a lot of research, crunch a lot of numbers. That helps chemists uh, uh, research and look for new materials to, you know, create out of stuff. And then the new materials go to the engineers, and engineers use it to create new fascinating things that we can all buy. I, I don't doubt that there are some times when government-funded physicists come up with stuff that is useful to engineers in the free market. I mean, I don't think I ever denied that that's not even remotely possible. But the reality is that they're not driven by the market, right? The physicists are not driven by the market. They're not driven by voluntary relationships. So what do people want? Well, they want iPads, iPhones, Android. They want uh, cool stuff that they can use to make their life better. Do they want a Hadron Super Collider? 
Hell no, they don't, which is why the physicists have to lobby the government to extract money from the helpless and largely ignorant population by force in order to have their cool toys to play with. Now, if people want to smash atoms together and try and figure out the origins of the universe, I think that's cool. Then they can sell tickets to it or they can take up donations to it like I do. I think philosophy is a little bit more important than physics, but I'm not running to the government with my hat in my hand saying, give me money. Uh, from people by force. I am uh, asking people for money so that I can do what I argue is good for the world. Now, in a free market, of course, um, you generally have people who invest in companies because the companies can show that there's a market need. So when I uh, co-founded a company or when I sold the company, when I got involved in more company sales, you had to say, well, here's the market, here's the competition, and here's why you should give me your money because it will end up servicing or serving uh, somebody's needs uh, where they'll exchange money for the goods or services that we are providing. Mm -hmm. And I think that is fine and honorable and noble and decent and a good and useful thing to do. There are other pursuits where I can't, like if I were to start a philosophy show like this, like Free Domain Radio, I wouldn't be able to go to investors and say, ah, you see, there is a huge demand that people have for philosophy and they're going to pay me 50 cents a podcast and here's my competition and here's my market research. Because this show is the ultimate expression of what in economics is called Say's Law, which is supply creates its own demand. People didn't know they wanted iPads until there were iPads. They didn't know they wanted Walkmans until there were Walkmans. Uh, people didn't know how valuable and useful and helpful philosophy could be until this show or shows like it came along. So right. uh, in the pursuit of trying to service the world's need for philosophy, I have to stimulate the world into recognizing how useful and necessary philosophy is because most of the world thinks that philosophy is a useless dead corpse science that only necrophiliacs would bang. Uh, I have to show them that it's relevant and important and useful and essential. That's my challenge. Now, if I was off there getting government money to, to come up with ethical theories and stuff, I wouldn't be face, facing the marketplace and finding ways to make people interested in what I'm doing. Now, I survive on donations, which is exactly what physicists should be doing if they say, like, either it's bullshit, in which case, fine. You know, lots of bullshit gets funded in the world. I would consider religion to be one of those major bullshit. Political parties, <laughs> lots of bullshit gets funded in the world. So if they want to go smash atoms together, fantastic. It's bullshit in a lot of ways in terms of there's no particular customer need for it, no particular customer desire or demand for it, great. Then go online and say, hey, we want to do some bullshit. Can you give us some money? Maybe that's what a lot of people think I'm doing. Hey, love to do some bullshit. Can you give me some money for my bullshit? Uh, so if they're just whacking around with atoms and, and fine, great, you know, maybe yeah, it'd be kind of cool to figure out if they could figure out some cool stuff. And maybe there'll be some spillover somewhere else that's a value too. So either it's bullshit with regards to the market and again i use the word bullshit here not to mean that it's false it's just not market driven so um if it's not market driven then they should be asking for donations now if it is market driven in other words if they say look we'll be providing this framework for all these engineers to create all this cool stuff well fantastic then they should be the r&d arm of a company or they should supply they should have their own company they should get investors and they should get money voluntarily but they should not be uh, going up and saying we've got a right to play with atoms at gunpoint uh, that's bullshit and it's horrendous and it is the complete okay. opposite of the scientific method does that help at all okay so Yes, it does. It's, you're pointing. You're pointing more specifically to the extortion 
uh, side where the money flows rather than the field itself. Uh, it came across through the video, or at least my, it, was, it was my perception that it was the field itself of physics that you uh, found useless. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how to, I mean, I can only be as clear as I can be, and I've consistently praised the scientific method and said that the scientific method is one of mankind's greatest uh, achievements, uh, along with the uh, the free market uh, and uh, uh, reason and philosophy itself. So, you know, if people want to sort of say, well, he thinks that uh, uh, science is bad, well, that's just, I don't know. I don't know how to make that clear. It's, it's the coercion that bothers yeah, me. I, what I like I about engineers is they're building stuff that people want. You know, it's just a basic Misesian or uh, Austrian economics thing. You cannot figure out the value of something outside of the price mechanism. You cannot, like they say, oh, the Large Hadron Collider, I don't know, what is it, 10 billion, 20 billion, who knows? Well, I, I mean, somebody sure. knows. I don't know how much it costs, right? But uh, they say, well, that's too much cost. What's the value of it? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. You know, if you want to know the value of something, put the goddamn thing on eBay. You know, if I want to know the value of philosophy, I put my shows out there and I ask for money. And guess what? I can figure out pretty easily what the value of philosophy is. But put sure. something on eBay and figure out who's willing to part hard-earned money for it, and then you'll find out the value of something. But uh, going to the government means that you have drained value away from other people by taking their money by force or inflating their money supply into vapor. But you're right. basically just a bunch of thieves with pocket protectors. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that point, we would we would certainly agree. So um, excellent. <laughs> All right. Is I'm, there I'm anything else you want to I would love um, uh, the moral relativism. I suppose was the only other point, but uh, I I've been of the opinion that moral relativism, or I'm a relativist naturally in my natural state. But um, you you uh, I'm a what, what? Hang on a sec. I'm a relativist naturally. I don't know what that means, because you're talking about an intellectual position. Are you saying that you are genetically predetermined to hold the position of moral relativism? Uh, I don't know. I got to that point where I would look at people and see, everybody seemed to have their own beliefs. And that was like, all right, well, I'd argue with people to a significant extent. And after a while, I just said, you know what the hell with it? Um, you have your belief system. I'll say I'll say with mine. Um, but you've been arguing for a more absolute sense, and I've only seen one video on that, and I found it actually kind of fascinating. Where well, you right. argued for a um, the opposite of that. Forgive me, I'm not being very specific. No, I get it. So uh, everybody has a, a wide variety of belief systems, and uh, I uh, say that most of them are rank self-serving uh, bullshit that is forced down the throats of children, uh, usually at uh, at the point of violence or, or murder threats in the case of religion. Uh, and um, uh, what happens is without philosophy, everyone gets exhausted and you're either going to go behead people or you're going to throw your hands up in the air. You're going to say, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree. You go into your corner, I'll go into my corner and we'll just do our own thing with the people who believe what we believe and let's balkanize this shit up. Uh, the wazoo, and uh, we all retreat to our corners, and we claim that moral relativism is the way that uh, things work. So, I mean, I, look, I mean, if if, if we're going to do the moral relativist thing as a society, fine, fine. Then what we need to do, of course, is we need to start teaching children moral relativism. We need to start teaching children 
that there's no such thing as right and wrong, that there are no social rules that they have to obey, that whatever they want to do is perfectly fine and cannot be uh, considered right or wrong or good or bad. Want to study for that test? Study for the test. If you don't want to study the test, well, we're not going to fail you because that would be a judgment call. Want to go hit another kid? Sure, go hit another kid. That's no problem. Want to go push another kid into a frozen lake? Yeah, go push another kid into a frozen lake. You don't have, you, you want to make up your own spelling? Go for it. There's no such thing as truth and reality and objectivity. Do your own math. Make that shit up. You know, pretend that uh, a silent Bob is shitting out kanji, you know, a tilt-a-whirl and call it mathematics. That's fine. So my question is, how the hell do we have a society where most adults claim moral relativism and most adults hit children for disobedience? two values. You understand those two things are completely contradictory. If we have moral relativism, let's teach the kids that there's no such thing as good and bad and right and wrong. And let's never hit them because that would be imposing your values on someone else. So how the hell do we have a society where adult to adult is nothing but moral relativism But adult to child is Stalin-esque totalitarian brutality. And I would argue that those two things are exactly the same. One is a direct cause of the other. Why can adults not reason with each other? Because they were fucking hit as children. Why can adults not find objective resolution to their disputes? Because they were bang, 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 hit as children. Asking kids to reason when they become adults is like asking me to be fluent in Mandarin when I've never been exposed to it. My daughter is fantastic at negotiating, fantastic at reasoning with people, very assertive, uh, very confident, because that's the language we speak at home. So what bothers me, I'm not saying in you, right, but what bothers me as a whole is the unbelievable N-dimensional, matrix-style hypocrisy of societies around the world. When they have control over kids, they generally beat and terrify and torment the shit out of them to get them to conform to all the social bullshit masquerading as culture and values in the world. In other words, when human beings have power, then they impose totalitarian will on their children through spanking, through school, through religious indoctrination, through cultural indoctrination, through the death worship of army indoctrination and army worship. When people have power, they impose totalitarian, dictatorial, brutal, quote, values on their kids. Ah, but when adults meet other adults who have some sort of independence and some sort of freedom, what happens? Well, I don't want to impose anything on you, right? Well, I guess your beliefs are as valid as mine. So let's just agree to disagree. You go to that corner, I'll go to this corner. Right? Well, which is it? Well, what it is, is bullying and cowardice. People bully kids when they have power over them. And when they meet other adults, suddenly they're as meek as little lambs. Well, we'll just agree to disagree. Multicultural, blah, 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 right? Moral relativism. Well, if moral relativism is true, we are abusing our children by hitting them and commanding them to obey certain ethical standards.
If moral relativism is true, then the entire court system, the entire judiciary and punishment system is evil. If moral relativism is false, if moral relativism is false, then people who will not impose their values on others, though they are more than willing to beat them into their kids, are a goddamn bunch of cowards. I'm not putting you in that category. I'm just telling you the general approach that uh, bothers me. Okay. Well, pretty good. Um, what's the better way? The better way? Um, you mean the better way of instructing children? Um, that was the sort of originally my question. I'm uh, kind of realized the mishmashiness of moral relativism and you were speaking more on virtue and sort of the, the way the opposite of that, your particular view, uh, universal, um, universal behavior. behavior. Well, look, I mean, yes. people can get into the theory and I, I applaud people who get into the theory. It is really important to be skeptical and to examine deeply uh, moral philosophy because you, you know, you don't want to be led astray because morality is the most fundamental engine that runs the social world. But for people who don't want to get into all of the uh, philosophy, well, um, you just have to accept that we're not really lying to our children. I mean, that's all you have to do to, to be a moral, quote, philosopher in the world. Uh, all you really have to do is say, hey, maybe we're not totally bullshitting our kids. So when my daughter hits another girl, not that she ever has, but if she did, my daughter hits another girl, hits another boy, I say, whoa, that is absolutely unacceptable. We don't hit. We don't use force to get what I want. We don't grab. We don't push. We don't hit. Now, parents say this all the time. Teachers, mm -hmm. priests, everyone says this all the time. And that's all there is to it. Hey, we don't hit. And a moral standard that is appropriate for a three-year-old I think without a huge amount of extrapolation can be fairly valid for a 30-year-old as well. Do not initiate the use of force against others. It's what we tell our children all the time. It's what's in a couple, couple of at least of the Ten Commandments. And there's something about if Kim Kardashian lives next to you, something about her burrow or something like that. But anyway, um, we just not, we just, we're, not, uh, we're not lying to our children. So don't use force to get what you want. That's, that's all that's required to be a moral philosopher. And um, we just have to universalize that. That's all. I mean, the same thing happened in science, right? Everybody knows that if you let go of a rock, it falls. Right. But then people think, well, it falls to a fixed and unmoved earth, as the Old Testament says. It's like, well, no, no, <laughs> right? Every, it's all universal. The, 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 the physics that applies to the rock applies to the earth. And of course, as we all know, the rock falls to the earth and the earth is in a near perpetual fall around the sun as the moon is in a near perpetual fall around the earth, as the sun is in a near perpetual fall around the galaxy and so on. Hmm. So all you have to do is take the same principles of the rock and say, hey, they apply everywhere. Bingo, bango, bongo, you've got the magic of modern science, which is why we're talking and why we have all of these amazing toys and tools and distractions.
It's the same thing with ethics. My three-year-old should not hit other children. Ah, I wonder if we universalize that, what happens? Well, when you universalize gravity, centrifugal forces, uh, gravity wells, and the endless falling of the stars and planets, it freaks you out. It freaks you the hell out because you go, wait a minute, the whole world is falling and turning and the sun is falling and turning (laughs) and the moon is falling and turning just like this rock falls and turns. It freaks people out. The the whole worldview tears itself asunder and is remade in the image of truth. And they don't get to be the the, the sort of fixed special little snow globe of God's experiment uh, on, in the world. They don't get to be the center of the universe. They, they have to look at the facts. The rock falls, the earth falls, the moon falls, the sun falls. And when you take the non-aggression principle, which we impose sometimes forcefully on three or four-year-olds or two-year-olds maybe, when you take that and extrapolate it, it is as disorienting to our society as everything falls was to the physical worldview of the medievalists. I gotcha. So you simply take the standards which we all accept and we universalize them. And from there, flowers as astonishing a set of human potentiality in the future as the grasping of the scientific method had in the past (laughs) with one caveat right one of the Uh theories as to why as to why the medieval period ended and we got the age of we've got the elizabethan era and we got the renaissance the enlightenment and so on and and finally the industrial revolution one of the theories which i hope will not have to be repeated but one of the theories is it was our good old friend the bubonic plague the black death that raced, I think, from the east to through Constantinople and into Europe on the lice and ticks on the backs of the rats uh, on the ships, that the, the bubonic plague, plagues in general, take out lower IQ populations. And one of the theories is that uh, the, the, the staggering death count of the bubonic plague eradicated low IQ populations, low IQ gene pools, and then you had a higher IQ population, which uh, was able to produce the astounding feats. And, and Now, I'm hoping like hell that we don't have to have any repeat of anything like that. Um, I'm hoping that philosophy and reason and evidence can uh, move society to a better place and that we don't have to, in a sense, reverse decapitate the uh, human genome in order to, to move forward. Um, but uh, you can't tell the future. You can only work to change it. So uh, I hope that makes some sense. It certainly does. Uh, one last, before we go, uh, one last question. How, what is the limit of the universal-ness of it? Because if, if it works for uh, children, uh, are you still there? Yeah. Ah, um, if it works for children and we apply it to adults, um, what's the limit of that? Uh, in my in my perspective, um, I'm referencing like dolphins and animals and things who are seem to be able to experience the world. 
Um, oh yeah, no the the limit right right responsibility for universality rests upon those who can conceive of universality. Right. So ah. the moment I mean I, I watched this with my daughter. So the moment she started using words like everywhere, always, never, right, all abstractions of uh, infinite set. The moment that she started to use abstractions, which had universalization. In other words, for instance, so she she learned her high chair was her high chair, right? And then we go to a restaurant and she sees another baby in a high chair and she says a high chair, right? Mm-hmm. Boom! She's got universal conceptualization, right? Now, and she's mm-hmm. she's um, she's able to express that, right? So I say, well, what is a high chair? And she's able to describe to me what a high chair is. Uh, and uh, why it's a high chair and not some other kind of chair and so on. So the moment she's able to grasp and verbalize universalizations, what I guess would be called the platonic forms in the ancient world, concepts unrestrained Mm -hmm. by individual instances, which happens very early on. Uh, Kids can do statistical reasoning at seven months, moral reasoning at 13 months. So for me, it was about 18 months uh, I gave it a little bit of lag to just be sure that it wasn't a one-off. But the moment my daughter was able to speak in universals, then she was subject to UPB. I mean, in developing circumstances with all the caveats of she's still a toddler and so on. Sure. And um, so uh, if, we, if we find uh, that animals can uh, verbalize and uh, discourse on universal abstractions, then they will be subject to uh, universally preferable behavior. Uh, this would be uh, the same for um, uh, alien races uh, we might find in space and so on. So, uh, so does that does that help? Very good. That does very much. Thank you so much for Fantastic. having me on your show today. You're very welcome. All right. Thank you, David. Um, up next is Ramiz. Ramiz wrote in and said, I am currently raising my four-year-old sister with the help of my other younger sister. It's getting harder and harder to take care of her time-wise, and I can't pawn her off to her father as it'll destroy her life. How do I raise her properly but also juggle my time commitments? Ah. Can you just go over that one more time? I just, I, so I think I understood it, but I just skipped. There was a lot sort of compressed in there. So you're raising your four-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to say before I start, um, you know, thank you to you and Mike and everybody else that, um, you know, calls, does it provide a service? I'm super grateful for it. Um, and honestly, it's become like a concrete resource for me to go to. Um, oh, I, I appreciate that, and we are uh, incredibly grateful. I just by the by, you know, people are like, "Well, how come you don't talk more abstract philosophy?" Well, first of all, I've done a lot of that, and secondly, you know, the people who ask that must have never run a business or, or run anything that's customer focused. You know, when 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 people call in, uh, you know, I would say seventy to eighty percent of the time they have sort of how can philosophy help me in my personal life. So it's just kind of funny for me, like. You know, it's like people are saying, give me hot dogs, give me hot dogs, give me hot dogs. And it's like, Steph, why do you have a hot dog cart? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, can you not hear the people? But anyway. You should um, serve more McRibs, by God. (laughs) Clearly they want salad. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ramiz. I appreciate that. But yeah, so give me uh, just a bit more of the background. Yeah. um, I don't even know where to start with this. Um, I guess, okay. um, I have... Three sisters and one younger brother. Um, the younger brother's a stepbrother, and the sister that I'm currently raising is a stepsister. Uh, not stepsister, half-sister and half-brother, sorry. And I've got 
two of the sisters, 119 and 115. So um, I live in an apartment with my four-year-old half-sister, my 19-year-old sister, and myself. And uh, together we're basically raising a um, mum has moved abroad to Pakistan uh, in, I think it was... You mean the, the four-year-old's mum? Yeah, yeah, the four-year-old's mum, my mum. She's moved why, abroad. Why has she moved to abroad? Um, basically, um, life has become too hard for her in England, and she's just sort of skipped home. And um, yeah, that's more. That's the most information I can sort of get out of her. Um, and she's Wait, not really I mean, but did she not notice that her tits are longer and her blouse is kind of wet recently from breastfeeding? I mean, does she not notice the four-year-old? I, mean, I don't quite um, understand. She notices, but she just doesn't care. Um, and uh, she came back in May to sort some finances or something. And um, she basically said to me, either you can give her to a stepfather, uh, you know, uh, her father, or you can just give her up to, you know, the government or whatever. It's not my problem anymore. And, uh, yeah, that's it. She got, she, I think she's married over there now. Um, and she's oh. doing whatever she's doing. So the, the kind of mom whose Mother's Day cards might come with, say, wires and a ticking sound. All right. Uh, yeah, well, basically. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I am, and I'm sorry to hear. Was this your mom as well? Yeah, this was my mom. Um, wow. So, yeah. Sounds like quite a charmer. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. So, w- w- what's, uh, so she was married to your dad. And yeah. What happened to your dad? Or was she not married? Um, no, no, she was married to my dad. Uh, you know, they got married back home in Pakistan. Um, and then they came over here in England, and then I was born. Um, so they together they had three children: me, my sister, and my younger sister. Um, and then after that, I think I was around the age of fifteen. I was fourteen, fifteen, and um, she just got disenchanted with my dad. Um, you know, they ended up getting basically a divorce. And um, uh, wait, 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 wait! What do you yeah. mean, basically a divorce? Um, they got separated, they had like a Muslim divorce first, then they got a proper divorce, um, through the, uh, uh, I don't know, yeah, the UK divorce, I guess. There's, there's like okay. two sort of divorces, it's, it's a bit, uh, weird. Um. No, I get it, I get it. Yeah, so they got the Muslim divorce, and then I think a year or a year and a half later, um, they got the government UK divorce, and... As always, there's another man creeping around the corner with her, um, and that's where my half sister comes into play. Like when I was 18 or something, and uh, it just sort of gets hairy and hairier. Um, I don't really know how to explain it fluidly. I mean, uh, do you want something specific? Um, well, I mean, how old was your? Um uh, how old was the um, youngest when the mother left? Um, well, she didn't actually leave at first. She's only left this um, past uh, six months or so. I think it, I believe it was like January this year she left us to go abroad. Um, she, we actually stayed with her and our dad left first. She kicked him out of the house. Um, I think that was around the age of 14 or 15. And... Um, something's happened with like debts and the bank was trying to take over the house. So we moved, um, literally a street away from our original house. 
Um, and we were staying with her up until, you know, uh, this year in January, like I said. And that's when we, me and my sister and my uh, little sister moved into our own apartment. Um, and I, uh, I should mention as well, my grandma, um, um, uh, that's my mother's grandma, mom's mom, was living with, with us the entire time. And uh, she's a bit of a fire star too. So, yeah. Um, Don't doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so hang on. So, how was your mom with the youngest before she left? Um, um, my youngest sister. Um, you mean before my half sister, four year old? Yeah. 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 Um, she was a surprise baby, um, and to be honest, she was not so good with her. I mean, she used to beat me regularly. I think as a kid because um, she was frustrated but um, no no sorry? no no did I say something wrong now yeah what did you say I don't know beat me regularly because um, I don't know why I put that in there you said she beat me regularly because she was frustrated yep no tell me Ramis do you ever get frustrated yeah do you go around hitting kids? No, I do not. No, you do not. You do not. Yeah. Don't give me this bullshit that women hit children yeah. because they're frustrated. Yeah. Because I have way too much respect for women to say that they're just machines with no capacity for impulse control, no capacity for doing the right thing. Frustration comes in. Child abuse comes out. They're just these robots. Well, yeah. you know, they, they, yeah. they have the, they have all of the willpower of ice cream attempting to resist sunlight. They just melt because that's the environment. Yeah. No. Why did your mother hit you? Your mother hit you because that's what she wanted to do. Yeah. Because she chose that as an action. Hmm. Right. Um, and this is this is it's really important because, by God, you are not alone in this. I mean, if you ever want to realize just how much contempt people have for women, just go on to domestic abuse sites, look up these statistics for female violence against children and spouses, and see how repetitive it is. It's like the 12th gong coming after the 11th gong at midnight. Mm. Children do hit children. Sorry, uh, women do hit children. But you see, they're facing socioeconomic pressures. They hit them because the man left. They hit them because they're frustrated. They hit them because they had postpartum depression. They hit them because, because, because. Mm. Demonic possession. Weird marionette strings from Manson's prison cell. <laughs> right? But, I mean, I, I've still yet to see... A lot of men get excused for hitting women because they're a little stressed, right? Like, so this, this football player, a couple of months ago, there's video of him, his, his fiance, his then fiance hits him in an elevator and he just freaking clocks her and she goes down like a sack of potatoes. She smashes her face against the metal bar, the handrail on the inside off the elevator and she is just I thought she's dead and basically he drags her out of the elevator and carries her off 
she's tired. And um, a month later, they're married, right? And this guy, Ray Rice, the, and the woman now is tweeting, oh, no, like, he's my hero. He's my love. Uh, don't take away his career. We've suffered enough, blah, 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 right? And so immediately, of course, everybody starts rushing to, well, you know, she's an abuse victim, and abuse victims sometimes stay with the men because of socioeconomic reasons, blah de blah de blah right? Okay, let's say that that's uh, credible. How many times have you ever read that men stay with abusive wives because those abusive wives can destroy their lives through the family court system, through alimony and child support? You leave me, husband of mine, I will take you for everything you've got. You will never see the children again. I will claim you abused them. I will claim you... How many men have to stay with women because of that? Have you ever heard that argument? Yeah, yeah, I have. I've never heard that argument. Maybe (laughs) you read different websites than I do. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But, um... No. I grant women full moral responsibility. I mean, unless they have some degenerative brain disorder, brain tumor, Alzheimer's, whatever, unless they've got something which is physically screwing up their brain. I'm sorry, people are saying that people do make those arguments. Yes, but in the mainstream media, right? In the mainstream media, do you you see excuses? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you see excuses for, for men who are stressed or upset? And... I will not express any contempt for women by saying they are not morally responsible for their actions. And you know what's weird? Is that when I say women are morally responsible for their actions, that I treat them as equal to men, do you know what I get called sometimes? A woman hater. Because I give women the respect of moral responsibility. I don't white knight. I don't give them separate standards. I don't treat them as children. Well, she was stressed, so she had to hit. Because she's just a stress machine with windmill arms. I'm actually called a woman hater for accepting that women are responsible moral agents just like men. Yeah. Misogynist. Do you, do you, that is so completely insane. I don't even know what to say about it. Right? Why do men have affairs? Because they're bad. Why do women have affairs? Because they feel unloved. <laughs> oh, my God. My God. A... A man who drunk drives is fully, in fact, more responsible for the negative results of his drunk driving. A woman who acquiesces to sex when she's drunk has been raped. According to many statistics and theoreticians. Sweet mother of God. How screwed up have we become as a society when refusing to treat women like retarded children... Gets you called a misogynist. The greatest misogynists are those who do not hold women morally responsible. And the greatest racists are those who do not hold various races, various ethnicities, various minorities 
morally responsible. Noted. All right. So don't give me this. She hit me because she was stressed. That's just my bit, right? Oh, I don't doubt she was stressed. Do you know one of the reasons why she was stressed? Because she was hitting her children. <laughs> because when you hit children, they don't really want to listen to you. When you hit children, they become defiant. They become passive aggressive. They don't respect you. They don't listen to you. So saying that you hit children because you're stressed is like saying you drink because your life is a disaster after you've been drinking for 10 years solidly every day, 10 beers. It's like, no, no, no. You don't drink because your life is a mess. Your life is a mess because you drink. So um, I just really wanted to pause and make that point. I do not want my daughter to grow up in a world where she gets a get out of jail free card because her hair is a little longer. Absolutely. All right. um, Where were we? (laughs) How is your, let's call the youngest uh, Munira. Munira. Your youngest sister. So how is Munira doing at the moment? Um, she's fine. She just started school, uh, reception last week and, um, she's fine. Yeah, she's doing good. Um, me and my little sister, we're taking care of her as much as we can. Um, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's getting a bit where I'm not exactly a parent. So I'm sort of learning most of this as I go along and sort of listening to you talking about how you raise your daughter and, um, it's it's yeah it's pretty much trial and error at this point where um, I'm just trying to do my best as I possibly can but it's it's one of those things where I wasn't really prepared for it. Um, oh, of course, so, of course not. Yeah. So look, first of all, Ramiz, like I really wanted to express my intense admiration for the work that you're putting into your your um, youngest sister. I mean, she is she is a damn lucky kid to have you, and I assume your sisters in her life. Yeah, well, I, cu- I couldn't do most of the stuff I can do without my uh, sister. Uh, she, I would say she does, you know, more than me, probably 70% of the grunt work when it comes to my little sister. Um, I'm just the administrator, I guess, that keeps everything in check. But, I mean, she's got what? I mean, assuming to the end of uni, she's got like 18 years to go, your youngest sister, right? <laughs> yeah. So what's the plan? I mean, I know it's a ridiculous question to ask because there's no even remotely easy answers. But what uh, what is the plan? You know, that's a tough one. I mean, I have my um, dad's brother who tries to sort of question me on these sort of things. And he goes, well, what happens when, you know, uh, my uh, sister that helps me raise her, uh, she's called. And he says, you know, what happens when she gets married? What happens when you get married and you have a full time job? I mean. I mean, who's going to, like, what what if you want to date? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I come with some baggage, right? (laughs) And I hate to refer to Venera as baggage, but um, I I come with some uh, accessories, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I've got a little baby sister. Um, She's basically a kid now, so deal with it. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So, of course, I mean, the women um, and again, this is nothing. It's just biology. Right. Doesn't mean we can't overcome it. But a lot of women are basically saying, well, I would like some resources to raise my children. Right. Mm. And so if you have your mom's daughter, then that's a huge amount of resources, time, energy, money that has to go into that. There's going to be less 
left over for whoever you're dating or your future kids, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Have you, sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, please go ahead. I was just going to run, but yeah, you're more important. No, I hate, listen, you've got stuff to rant about. I'm happy to listen. No, I mean, I guess it's not really a run. It's just, honestly, I I don't know what I'm going to do. It's one of those situations where I'm just taking it and if the bridge comes, it comes. If not, then just carry on uh, doing what I'm doing. Um, but I know that's not really the best way to go about things. So I do sort of need some plan to uh, keep it all in check. Yeah. Well, you have a, I mean, you have a life to have as well, right? Yeah, I'm only 22, I guess. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a hell of a, a hell of a thing to dump on you. And I, I don't even want to get into what I think of your mom right now because I'm sure we think pretty much the same thing. But um, yeah. what are your thoughts around having her adopted into a stable two-parent household? I haven't even thought about that. It's never even came okay, close. Okay, well, let, let's think about that. Let's, yeah. let's think about that okay. right now. Okay. I don't – look, please understand. I'm a guy on the internet. I don't know what you should do, but there are some facts that can help. The the girl's situation now has a kind of innate st- instability to it insofar as you all are going to have your lives to some degree, right? Yeah. And so there is not as much stability as there would be with sort of a happily married couple who would really want the kid. Maybe they have fertility issues or maybe they just want another kid. So if she were to be adopted into the into that kind of household, there would be a kind of stability there of that – would be somewhat difficult, if not impossible, to provide in this constellation of siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, my understanding, and, you know, obviously you need to do your own research. It's been years since I've read on this stuff. My understanding is that children who are adopted do as well as native-born kids, but children who are raised in unstable environments don't do nearly as well, in general, on aggregate. Obviously, there's tons of individual exceptions yeah i would generally agree with that yeah so in terms of that overused phrase in the best interests of the child it may be worth doing the research to figure out what her life will be like if she is adopted into a stable family okay now whether that adoption comes with visitation or like i don't again i this is all stuff that needs to be worked out. I just do have to ask where you, where the dad is in all this. Um, so I guess, we'll just call him my stepdad, I guess, for easy purposes. Um, he still lives local, um, but I don't trust him at all. He already, it's, he's kind of a bit of a womanizer. Um, I don't know if that'd be correct term. Um, what I feel he sort of, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I just don't trust him. He he runs like a clothing shop, and whenever I leave her with him, he will just basically dump her in the shop with whoever works there at the time, and just go off and do his own thing. And then he'll come back and you know pretend he's been looking after her the entire time. And um, it's yeah, I think he's got too much of his own stuff to do to even give her the time of day, even though it's her kid, uh, his kid, sorry. Well, I mean, 
too much of his own stuff to do. I mean, maybe Whatever that's that how British people say he's a selfish prick, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's a selfish prick. Um, but I'd, honestly, I think that would be an even more unstable environment. Um, and unless we call him up to actually look after her for a while or anything, he just won't bother calling. Um, Oh, so, so he has no particular interest in seeing the girl. No, it, it, he used to call us like, uh, my mom, you know, spoke to him about this situation and he said, you know, I'd take care of it. But me and my sister were like, look, we know what you're going to be like. If you want to come and pick her up and see her on the weekend and stuff like that, cool. If not, no worries. And he did it for the first few months, like March, April. And then slowly, slowly, you know, we're up till now when the last time he saw was like three and a half weeks ago, maybe something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's for a four year old, that's infinity. Yeah. Is there anyone in the extended family? I mean, I hesitate to ask because these family dysfunctions tend to cluster pretty far <laughs> and wide in the gene pool. But is there anyone in the extended family that you think might be able to provide it? Like married couples without kids who love each other or you know, anything yeah, that, it's, um, it's, it's funny that you just mentioned it now. Um, when my mom was talking to one of our, like, family friends I guess and um, they were talking about you know potential adoption before she went abroad and I think me and my sister were just adamant to not the idea of all in our head it, it just occurred to me now I've forgotten about it ages ago and they possibly said that they would look after her um, I guess that could be something I could explore again um, but they're not extended family they're like family friends as such but I, you know they're good people as far as I know um yeah, I mean, I mean, unless you're willing to basically put your life on hold for close to two decades, or or see what you can uh, figure out to do um, for like get someone involved in your life when you already have a huge and significant responsibility. Um, it, it, look, if you want to do that, then obviously that's one possibility. Um, what is the legal status of the child at the moment? I mean, um, is she still your mom's kid? Your mom still has, I guess, legal, legal guardianship or custodianship? Yeah. So that would probably need to be transferred, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they tried to do that uh, over to me as, like, the main guardian or, uh, you know, whatever that means. But um, the dad said, uh, no. He just said, if you're going to do that, you might as well just give it to me. Um, I'm not going to hand over ownership. So on top of being a selfish prick, he's being an even more selfish prick. Um, I, I think that's because he gets child benefits from her or something every month or week or something. Yeah, she's um, a form of welfare crop, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's that too. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the the choices are pretty stark. I mean, expecting <laughs> your parents to resurrect some sort of mirror neurons in their brain and come back and uh, take responsibility for the life that they created mm. is not something I would hold my breath for. Neither would I, yeah. So I think the choice comes down to are you going to be willing and able to dedicate your life for the next 20 years to this child, which, you know, obviously doesn't mean being a monk, doesn't mean, you know, you whatever, right? People yeah. are single parents uh, all the time. Yeah. But um, uh, if you're willing to do that, then that's one possibility. It is going to be about the biggest decision you're going to make, and I hate to think of a decision landing on your young shoulders. Yeah. But if you make that decision, it's going to have a huge impact on your income, on your employability. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, young men and young women, but in particular, young men, when they get out into the workforce, I mean, the way you establish yourself is just work like a dog and you can't do that. Yeah. The, I mean, that's one of the major problems that's been happening this entire year for me. And I mean, this summer, my sister's been able to stay at home and pretty much look after her. But once she starts uni and once I start getting into the flow of things now in these next couple of months, I have no idea how we're going to look after her. It's scaring me just thinking about it so i right no and and you're right to be scared because uh, are you planning uh, sorry are, have you done uni or are you going i've just yeah graduated in july I just graduated. yeah so i mean yeah. you want to you want to get a job and and all and of course you can get a job if you have a kid i mean obviously right i mean daycares and all that although i'm not a huge fan of that sort of stuff yeah um but this is going to be your life mm. for 20 years and yeah. it's going to have a huge impact on your dateability. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's not a lot of people who, who, when choosing someone to date, say, hey, someone with a half-sister that they're responsible for but have no legal control over, that sounds great. Or as opposed <laughs> to you don't have those things. It's going to have an effect on your sexual market value, a significant negative effect. I mean, because it also it also is a huge tell about how screwed up your family is, right? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like it's on my conscience. If I, I mean, if I give her for adoption, I don't know if that just makes me selfish. I'd, uh... Well, no, no, no. Listen, if you if the research is there, that because if if you're going to raise her with your sister cycling in and out and with you um, not having the resources, you know. Single parenting is so hard because there's no one to play hot potato with. Yeah. Right, which is why, right, so but this happens with my wife and I. I need to go do something so she'll play with my daughter. She needs to go to sell, I'll play, right? And it can be as simple as I, I got to make three phone calls, you know, which could take 40 minutes. But well, you can't leave a three-year-old alone for 40 minutes, right? <laughs> Obviously, right? Nah. And so the hot potato stuff that, that is essential for parenting can't occur really in a single-parent household, which is why there's a lot of TV, there's a lot of video games, there's a lot of, you know, uh, drawing on your kneecaps with ballpoint pens and stuff. Oh, yeah, she's right? so there's the a Yeah, so if you're a single dad or a single whatever, for want of a better phrase, if you're a single dad, yeah. then your half-sister is simply not going to get the time with an adult one-on-one that she needs for optimum development. If she is adopted into a stable married family, then the odds are she is going to get that time. Mm. So it's not selfish if the statistics, the odds and the research show you that she's going to be better off. In fact, I would consider it selfish to keep her if the odds show that she's better off. Huh. Right. So before the welfare state, right, I just wanted to mention this because there's very few people. <laughs> there's very few people who don't misunderstand me willfully. Right. <laughs> who just let their amygdala fire up their outrage, outrage at what he said. And then, you know, they just harden into that scar tissue and then you can't you can't reason with them anyway. <laughs> but for those people who do misunderstand me accidentally, um, in the past, when women got pregnant outside of wedlock, they would give the child up. For, they would either have an abortion or they'd give a child up for adoption. Now, 
I'm much more of a fan of the child living rather than dying. I think that uh, abortion in the absence of a direct threat to the mother could easily be conceived of as a violation of the non-aggression principle. It's not my sort of final answer, but where possible to, to where there's life is better than where there's no life, right? So what used to the woman used to go away sometimes with her mother for a holiday. She'd be gone for like three months and the baby would be taken from her after birth and would go to an adoptive family. And the, 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 the child would do much better in the adoptive family than with the single mom. Hmm. And that all changed with the welfare state, right? So with the welfare state, this weird situation was created, which is sort of what your dad is playing off, where children become a source of revenue rather than a consumption of resources. Yeah. Which is completely the ass opposite end of the universe from the economic reality. And it's only covered through massive taxation and debt. And so... Uh, my argument is that women who have children out of wedlock and keep them where it's possible to give them up for adoption to a good home are being selfish. If the child has the chance to land in a good home, it is selfish to keep that child with you because the child is going to do far better statistically on average in a married two-person household than the child is going to do in a single-parent household. Men who live with women who have children and they're not the biological father are 40 times, not 40%, 40 times more likely to abuse those children. Whether we like it or not, we have a genetic preference, which is obviously what's driving you to a large degree, and, and rightly so. We have a genetic preference for family, for clan, for tribe. That has been studied up the wazoo. And so you have a desire, obviously, to do the best. You have an attachment you love, you care for, and there's obviously your biology is mixed up in your half-sister. And I think that is all incredibly wonderful, incredibly commendable. But focusing on what is best for her means trying to detach the emotionality from it and trying to look at it as dispassionately as possible. And I don't mean that it's not going to rip your heart out if you end up giving her up for adoption, but it means looking at what is going to be best for her. In my opinion, again, obviously this is all crap because I'm just some guy on the internet, but in my opinion, the best situation would be to find somebody in the extended family who would be able to adopt her where you could continue a relationship with her or find people who would be willing to adopt her who would be willing to let you continue to have a relationship with her. Now, the challenge, if that is if the research bears that out and if you're you know, if you accept that that's the right thing to do, which is something you need to work on. The real question is then going to be what to do if your parents it doesn't sound like your mom is a big issue since it sounds like you think she might have remarried or whatever. But what happens if your dad doesn't want to give her up? Well, then you're going to have a battle on your hands, right? Yeah. I mean, we've been uh, keeping track of, you know, when he's lost um, paid for her and when he's lost being in contact with her. So we've kind of kept those records because I'd have a feeling we'd need them. Um, so, I mean, as evidence, if it ever got taken to call or anything like that, I think we'd be able to get it. But, I think if it's one of those things where I just sat down and talked to him 
I think he'd understand that it's a big problem for him too. Um, I mean, you're not just some internet guy. Your opinion is highly valued to me, so that's why I'm asking. But I, I, well, I, I appreciate that, and I'm I'm incredibly sorry that you're in this situation. I'm sorry that the little girl is in this situation. I mean, it's a huge mess and I am incredibly sorry for that. But boy, has she ever got people on her side, you know, which is more than a lot of people in these situations have. I mean, God, just massive props and and respect and bomb loads of medals to you guys for uh, sticking by her and doing the right thing and focusing so much on what's best for her. I mean, that's just amazing. And she is a very lucky girl in an, in a way, and um, you know, so so much respect and so much um, admiration for what you and your sisters are doing. But in my opinion, uh, really work on trying to figure out what the research is. Start canvassing uh, family members, extended family members, and say, look, we ha- we have this challenge. You know, the mom's gone, the dad is pretty uninvolved. We got a kid. Um, I'm a young man. My sisters are off to university. I might want to start a life. I don't know that I'm the right person as a single parent to raise this. I don't have any custody. Uh, So we need to, you know, if there's anyone decent in the family around. Yeah. um, I would really start to focus on trying to find a place for that kid to land where you can maintain a relationship, but where she can be with people who can provide her the resources that she needs to, um, to grow up as healthy as she can. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. It seems like the best answer that anybody's gave to me. Um, uh, I guess it's just one of those things where I have to get started then. Um, or you could um, pay for a heart transplant for your mother where they could just take, I don't care, any heart. could be a pig's heart. could be, I guess, not a pig's heart, but uh, could be a, a cow's heart. And they could open up the vacuum tubing that currently takes the place of your mother's heart and conscience. Stuff anything in there. Could be a heart. I think sawdust would be an improvement. Um, a plasma <laughs> suit, uh, anything, you name it. Old cathode ray tubes. Anything would be an improvement over what's there. But that I would put as a plan B. Yeah. I mean, but before she left um, in May, I mean, we had like a huge screaming, shouting match before she left to go back. Uh, she basically said something along the lines of, if you kids weren't so bad, I wouldn't have to leave you in this position. And it just absolutely boggled my mind as to what's going on in that tiny head of hers. But, uh, oh, God. Well, the head sounds not too tiny, but the heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how how are you feeling about about the call just before we sort of wind it up? How how's your heart doing? I mean, this is a hell of a thing to to have in your life. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm pretty. My heart's being a little bit quick. Uh, uh, I'm starting to cry a little bit for some reason. Uh, well, there is a reason, obviously, um, but it's uh, it's just anybody I try to ask about this sort of thing, they have no clue, and. I mean, I knew if anybody had sort of some sort of answer to get me right, started on the right path, it'd kind of be you. Um, and it's just one of those things where I'm just over my head. And I'm at that situation where two days ago I was just like, what the fuck do I do now? It's just, it's, I, I didn't expect this. If, I, if you even asked me a year ago um, that it would evolve into this, I just, it just came out of left field for me. But, um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's a brutal thing to have to deal with because 
your heart gets broken no matter what, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your heart gets broken no matter what. And that is such an impossible situation to be in. I, I mean, my heart's breaking just think about it. And I'm just like a fly-by voice on the ether. And uh, there's no way forward where you don't get your heart broken one way or another, right? Yeah. I mean, logically, giving her ad- for adoption would be the best thing. But um, I don't know. I mean, we've been practically raising her since she was born. So, yeah. Do you have uh, any access to um, to therapy? Because look, I mean, there's there's your half sister, and that's sort of the immediate content of this call. Yeah. But I mean, you've had a lot of emotional trauma, I would assume, being <laughs> raised by people like this, and in particular, uh, you know, how your mom blamed you for her leaving and abandoning her child, uh, blamed you and your sisters. I mean, that's just so wrong, so immoral, so vicious. And I can, of course, get a pretty clear picture of how it was for you going back over time. Yeah. Um, And um, I would, uh, uh, if if possible, I mean, I think that that it would be great if you could get uh, access to some skilled counseling in this this area. People have had some sort of experience with something like this. Uh, I think that would be really helpful because, I mean, you you have a lot to process in going through this. You're going to need a support system for a variety of reasons, even if it doesn't end up being a combat with the stepdad over the welfare crop. uh, It's going to be a a hell of a wrenching experience. And look, I mean, there's studies that show that the people who are the happiest are the people who've gone through some seriously bad shit. (laughs) I'm not saying I have any idea why. There's some theories as to why. But... We look at these gaping chasms of disaster that we have to swing Johnny Weissmuller style over from time to time as massive and substantial problems. And they are. But they can be the jet fuel to the stratosphere of happiness. Um, Having dealt with this, having uh, processed this, uh, having bonded like this and this experience, I'm sure with the right support system can make you a better, richer, deeper, more emotionally connected person. And the great gift that your little stepsister may give you, I'm sure she will, is through the process of bonding with her, through the process of getting therapy, and through the process of going through these wrenching decisions and confronting your family demons, I think the great gift she will give you is a massive invulnerability shield to people like your mom. Yeah. I mean... I I just feel old sometimes. It's like I feel light years ahead of my friends around me. Um, in the the shit I've been through, I feel so untouchable in sort of small circumstances because um, I'm just so used to it. It bounces off of me. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, therapy isn't something. It is I've weird. Look, about. and I don't want to make this about me, but um, yeah. you know, I mean, there was some. I don't know, I don't really watch it, but there apparently was some crap rolling about this show and me over the internet because, you know, typists are so courageous. And <laughs> and um, and I got some messages of support, and, you know, thanks, James, and thanks to the other people who sent the messages of support. They're very much appreciated, very much appreciated. But um, last year, I beat cancer. Wow. You know, internet trolls, seriously, they're about as much trouble to me as a cloudy fucking day. And that is the kind of strength you get from adversity. You know, it is true. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And um, there is strength on the other side of trauma, uh, 
that is unguessed at by people afraid of the trenches. Yeah. And that is a gift that you get from adversity. You know, strength is a muscle. It it hardens with resistance. Yeah. It's... I mean, your mom ran, your mom ran from her difficulties, which means she will never change. Oh, boy, boy. I I knew that a while ago. She wasn't, she's always victimized herself, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, and, you know, not my stepdad, but my actual dad, you know, he's, um, he's not street smart, but man, does he um, put himself out there? I mean, he basically helps me pay the rent every month, you know does everything he can um, to help me out. And, you know, this is my half-sister that comes over to his house every day to eat his food. And he says, look, at the end of the day, she's a kid. It's not her fault for the situation she's in. And I can't treat her indifferently to that. And it's sort of, it's, you know, it's crazy how much support he gives us in that sense. Um, But it's the complete opposite with my mom, which is just poison. Um, And yeah. Yeah, adversity also, I tell you, adversity is like, is like carpet bombing false relationships. Mm. You know, when, when you face significant adversity in your life, whether it's what you're facing or illness or financial ruin or you name it, what happens is there is a great sunlight that causes indifferent or false friends to scurry into the darkness away from you. And I'm forever grateful to the degree to which my illness and the chemo and the battle back to health, I'm forever grateful at the degree to which that helped help me figure out who my friends were. You know, friends are, you know, when the shit comes down, friends are the people coming in the door, not the ones drifting out. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, how are you doing now with your cancer? Are you completely cured of what was the situation uh cancer is a tough thing to say you're cured because the recurrence uh, is always a possibility but i am certainly completely symptom free and i go in for my three-month checkups and uh i get felt up in the least romantic (laughs) way you can imagine and um everything seems to be fine and uh, life is a beautiful and wonderful and magical thing and i am almost completely without fear so it's almost like the future will benefit from my tumor (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome i mean yeah i mean i uh i i feel that um there is there is nothing to hold back on anymore Mm. you know like walter white survived cancer you go pretty fucking hardcore. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, I was thinking about my situation, and I was watching Breaking Bad the other day, and I was just thinking, I mean, at least, you know, I don't have anything wrong with me health-wise. I can sort of, whatever it is, I can sort of get through it regardless. Um, that's not an issue. So, I mean, it's just it's trying to put things into perspective, I guess. Um, but um, I guess you've sort of done that for me. Um, yeah, and, and so this doesn't always help 
when you're in the throes of dealing with incredibly challenging stuff as you're dealing with. But, but, the joy that is on the other side of adversity is like 1% less than the adversity. <laughs> right? I mean, if it was more, we'd go out and seek out adversity. But it's like 1% less than yeah. the adversity is the joy and contentment and connection. There is nothing like deep tragedy to break your habit of wasting time and withholding truth. And this is going to permanently change how you relate to people. It's going to permanently change your perception of what it means to be connected to someone. It's going to permanently change for you what it means to love and to be loved, to support and to be supported. And your former life will seem a bit distracted and dreamlike, I think. Because you will actually have realized that for most of your life, you've only been pretending to dance with ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> the last thing I'll say is it will cure you of any desire to work both sides of a relationship. In other words, for me... And I think this is a deep enough experience that it's common, though, of course, I never want to tell other people what they experience. But for me, I am very patient now when it comes to seeing what people can bring to the table. I know what I can bring to the table in relationships with, with friends and others. I know what I can bring to the table. And before, because I have so much energy and focus and value for people, I'd be more than willing to give to make the relationship 70% or 80% or 90% my effort. Yeah. yeah. And now, now, not a bit, not a bit. I'm, I, I'm now, I'm patient enough and relaxed enough in a way to be curious about what people are bringing to me rather than trying to focus on the value I can bring to them. And that is greatly enhanced my friendships and my marriage, my relationship with my daughter, we, um, we were talking about happiness today. I've been doing some research on happiness. And I was trying to explain to her about the concept of happiness as a mean, as, as something in the middle. The Goldilocks, right? Not too hot, not too cold. This one is just right. <laughs> You know, one piece of chocolate is nice. A hundred pieces of chocolate, not nice. Actually, I had to sort of explain to her why that wouldn't be nice. But um, happiness is often in the mean. And I said, I said, so for instance, like I said, so what makes you the happiest? And she said, uh, waking up to see you and mommy. <laughs> and uh, boy, just melts you. It just melts you. It just melts you. And that is necessary for my relationships now, whereas in my relationships in the past, I was willing to crank uphill on a bicycle built for two while the other person was smoking cigarettes and making phone calls. And now you pedal or get off. 
in my relationships. And I think that that will happen to you. When you're young, you don't need people very much. And I mean, I've never been sick in my life. I've never spent a day in a hospital. <clears throat> I don't, I, I still have my wisdom teeth. I, I've never broken a bone. I, I've never really needed anyone. And you get sick and you're a parent and the illness was not the cancer. The il- illness was the, the chemo, right? <laughs> chemo was brutal. Mm-hmm. And you need people. And when you really, really need people, then you find out who sees you. You find out who understands your needs. You find out who's got a bone or two of kindness in their selfish skeleton. And that has been greatly clarifying for me. You know, I've had people, maybe people contacted me. This just blows my mind. People contact me like a, I guess it was about a year ago that I was finishing up the radiation treatment. And over the last, I don't know, six or seven months, I had people contacted me. People I used to know, people who'd been to my house, and part of the show. People contact me and say, I need you to do something for me. I need something. I need a conversation. I need some money. I need this. I need that. Now, in the past, uh, you know, uh, let me help you out. Now, God Almighty. Oh, you need something, do you? You know, I was facing death last year. Didn't hear from you at all. Didn't get a phone call. Didn't get an email. Didn't get a Skype. People I spent dozens of hours in conversations with and helped uh-huh. And uh, it's just immensely clarifying. It's immensely clarifying. You know, the year that I was facing dying on my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, I could have used more support than I got from the people I mistook for friends. I could have died on my daughter and my wife. And so with all that tragedy, with all that anxiety, with all that fear, well, I am not the same as I was. I am burned free of debris. I am clean. I am supersonic. I am streamlined now. And that is what gets burned away when you walk through that fire. All the debris, all the takers, all the insubstantial people, all the people whose values are in their words and not their hands. All the verbalizers, all the sophists, all the takers. Whatever survives the nuclear bomb can be taken down by no one. And yes, that is a radiation metaphor. (laughs) That's keeping track of my metaphors. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, 
I, um, it's a Gandalf the White thing, you know? He falls down with the Balrog and he comes back white, otherworldly, and almost infinitely strong. Level up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Level up. Level up. And we don't want disasters, of course. I mean, we're biological. We prefer the safety and security. But with safety and security, with safety and security comes a laziness in the necessary cleansing of your house that is required if you're doing more than the average. And that is something that's hard for people to understand who haven't gone through what you're going through, who haven't gone through what I've gone through, and what lots of other people have gone through. But you get stripped of distractions when you are basically toppling over your own fucking grave. It's you and the coffin. And the coffin is inhaling. And you are a feather. You don't even have a wing. It's will that keeps you out of that more that leads to the center of the earth called only in other people's memories do you continue. And I was going to be goddamned if I was going to get drawn into that portal during a time of my greatest loves, my greatest attachments, and my greatest capacity for world-saving fertile thought and communication. Oh, I was going to be goddamned if I was going to let a bunch of random bastard cells cut me down in my prime. So what I'm saying is I got a hell of a lot more than a tumor removed. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of get it's that like, out. My tumor was like those sleeves in those magicians where they keep pulling the, the kerchiefs out. My, my tumor was like the, the Volkswagen in the circus where the clowns keep coming, it, coming out. Pull out the tumor and keep pulling and keep pulling and keep pulling. And all this stuff just keeps coming out. Yeah. Shitty friends, distractions, fear, anxieties, the desire to withhold like I'm going to keep my cards because there's some prize. When you die, if you don't give everything you've got. You got a lot more than you didn't sign up for. Yeah, if you're going on a long hike, you rationed yourself. But when you're facing that giant fucking shark mouth of a coffin... And it's getting closer and closer. And you cannot get out of the water. You get that you're going to die whether you say what's on your mind or you don't. And there's no prize for the unsaid. No bonuses for all the words you die with in your head and in your heart. You don't. They're not chips you can then cash in in some afterworld casino. And that aspect of no prize for the unsaid has been a very driving force for me since last year. And I've always been focusing on 
trying to push the boundaries of human human communication and push the boundaries of what it means to speak and to listen and to connect with people. But since last year, I want to die utterly empty of words. I want to die like a spendthrift with not even one penny left in the vault. I want to spend my capacity so gloriously that I want to redefine what it means to have and hear language. And people who haven't faced those bullets, like that guy in Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson's character. Yeah. The bullets just go all the way around him, right? Yeah. And it changes his whole life. Well, I stood underneath a crate of knives that fell from the skies and all around me was a shadow of blades that missed. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't experienced that, and it's annoying to talk about it, but if you haven't experienced that, then it's hard to know what strength you're capable of. And I'm, the reason I'm talking about this is because I want other people to get the strength without having to have the cancer, right? To bring back the afterlife. I went with my daughter to a water park. And it was just an unbelievably sunny day. And water parks are a lot of fun. And the thought hit me very strongly. That I absolutely have no guarantees that I didn't die on the operating table last April in America. And that everything after this has been the afterlife. I mean, it's not true, but as an interesting thought experiment. But if it were true that I died and this is the afterlife, I'm very glad that it's the greatest heaven I could imagine. It's my days since my deliverance since the shower of blades parted above the air over my head, my days have been paradise, glorious. It doesn't mean I don't stub my toe. It doesn't mean I don't occasionally get frustrated. But when the sword only takes off the tip of your ear. Air is like wine. All food tastes good.
And all love is beautiful. All sex is glorious. All hugs are a connection to this world of almost infinite beauty. And so the trials that you're facing will leave you an elementally uncluttered human being. And that's the only comfort that I can give you for what you're going to be facing, which is going to be rough. Yeah, well, um, so I guess worse before I guess better, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an oncoming train. Uh, yeah. That's um, that's the best I can offer you, but I, and I hope it helps. And I also hope that you'll keep us posted. Definitely, will do. All right, thanks, man. And uh, congratulations again for everything you're doing. Thanks, Stefan. Right. Uh, thank you so much for calling in, Ramiz, and thank you, Seth, for that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful words. Up next is Frank. Uh, Frank wrote in and said, What strategies might you suggest for somebody trying to overcome the pervasive need to self-sabotage, which usually comes near the completion of a project or goal? well stop using the phrase self-sabotage because it's not true (laughs) did you ever have a sibling do you have a sibling yes i do um i have two i have two uh younger brothers right so you you as the older brother may have may have used this wee trick once in a in a while where you grab the younger brother's hand, and you make the younger brother's hand hit the younger brother, right? Oh, no. No, okay. Well, good, good. I'm glad that you weren't that kind of older brother, because Lord knows there's a few around. No. So uh, what you do, older, younger, like older brother asshole training is a couple of things, right? So you go up to a, your younger brother, and you say, yes means no, and no means yes. Do you want me to hit you? No. That... Uh, no, yes, no. Ah! Right. <laughs> Understand and, the mentality, um, but no, not me at all. Um, quite right. The okay, good. Fantastic. Okay, so what you do is you, you take the um, the younger kid's hand, right? And you make the younger kid's hand hit themselves, and then you say, stop hitting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. No, I understand, I understand where, you get, where you're getting at. Just complete opposite from 180 from where I, from where I was. You mean as a brother, an older yeah, brother? Yeah, no, I, I, I was, um, I've always been very empathetic. My, uh, the motor neurons fired at an early age for me. Um, so the thought of doing anything cruel was Wait, just alien. Did you say, did you say motor neurons? Motor neurons? Motor, motor, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I mumbled. Mi- mi- okay, there you go. Yeah. Okay, so you consider yourself a very empathetic person. Yes. With um, one exception. Yes, when it comes to myself. Um, like the previous caller, I've feel like emotionally exhausted, you know, hearing his plight. It just, ugh. I can't stand that there's evil people like his mother in the world. It just drives me nuts. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he's learning a very powerful lesson about, uh, you know, one of the greatest ways to maintain happiness in life is to surrender yourself to a higher cause. Oh, absolutely. It bugs a lot of objectivists and it bugs a lot of people, <laughs> but it's true. And it seems to be pretty consistently true. Um, 
Evil people always want you to focus on hedonism. Your pleasure, your happiness, because fighting evil people is anti-hedonistic. So they want you to focus on hedonism so that you don't take up arms against them, because mm-hmm. that can be unpleasant and difficult. Anyway, neither here nor there. So can you give me an example? Uh, certainly. Um, I finished a screenplay last uh, a year and a half ago, 18 months, whatever. Um, finished it, had it, had it submitted. It was going along. The process was going, moving along. Things were moving along. And right, right before, it's, you know, there was, a, there was a definitely a sale in progress. I was like, eh, and, and just kind of dropped it and walked away from the whole thing. No, no, no idea why I was doing it at the time. After the fact, I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why did you? Oh my God, are you kidding me? Aren't there like, aren't there like three people in the known galaxy who sell screenplays? I mean, everybody writes them, but who the hell actually sells Uh, them? I've sold three. Wow, good for you. Thank you. Nothing became of them. They were purchased and, you know, sit on a shelf indefinitely, but. No, no, but but still, right? There's money (laughs) coming in. Yeah. All right. So. Well, um. Do you mind if I eliminate a couple of possibilities with no negativity or prejudice towards you? No, by all means. Would the screenplay have made the world a better place? No. It might have entertained somebody. So was it like shoot 'em up car chase stuff? Yeah, monster movie, B-movie type thing. You know, know, fun (laughs) fair. And why are you writing that stuff? It's an outlet and it makes money. It's creative outlet. And do you think that you could write stuff that would be more meaningful to you? I, I've touched on it. I've got – this is part of my uh, problem. I've got 30 different projects that I'm juggling that I can't seem to like focus on any one of them for too long. There, there are a few more touchy-feely, goodwill hunting type of things, but over, overall it's kind of the schlock horror. Well, not like Sharknado 3 or something. Oh, right? God, no. God, no. However, one of my scripts okay. did sell to Sci-Fi Channel, Universal, you know, Universal NBC, and was uh, <laughs> turned into something horrible. <laughs> All right. Um. So, was it that you did not? So, what happened emotionally for you when you found yourself disengaging from the pursuit of the sale? Um, I I would just get really depressed. Uh, you know, I, I've always been prone to, you know, bouts of, you know, severe depression. I, I'm usually cognizant. The good of, news is you're the only writer that's ever happened to. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> However, I don't drink. Normally, it's just all <laughs> happy smiles for writers. Yeah, no, no, no. No, uh, however, I don't drink, so maybe there's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, that's, you know, that's usually what happens toward the end of the project. There'll, there'll be some form of depression that'll kick in, and it'll just get abandoned and put to the wayside. All right, so my next question is, <laughs> I always try not to lead people. I really, really try. But no, it's okay, it's okay. Okay, so we'll just, do you want me to just like go straight? Like, do you want me to dance around or? No, no, go straight. All right, balls deep, no lubrication. Oh, Here boy. we go. Um, who in your history is invested in your failure? Um, what do you mean by that? I'm sorry. Who in your history did not believe that you can achieve what you have achieved or could achieve in the future? Uh, that's that's a tough one. Um, I would say I've had both, you know, positive encouragement and uh, positive encouragement and 
kind of uh, you, you're kind of going too far with this um, from the fa- from the family background. My dad was always very encouraged. Your choice, man. I you know let's oh, no, let's no. go deep. Want to solve something oh, as ab- deep as depression? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, my dad was always very supportive of my ideas, but he was kind. Of, he would always kind of interject a little bit of reality into any of my grandiose ideas. Um, uh, hey, hey, wait, wait. So, See, sure. Already, <laughs> already, we have a problem of language, right? Okay. Okay. So, what was grandiose? <laughs> Um, an that example, you needed reality okay. injected into. An example, when I was 16, I invented uh, a self-sustaining power station um, from uh, based on tidal power. I, I know, weird stuff. Um, essentially running small is generators. That, why, why is that weird? Because I don't, I don't have an engineering background. I just can think stuff up that kind of makes sense and works, and I get to a point with the math. No, and that's, then, that's, that's not an answer. <laughs> You know, well, I'd really like to solve the problem of relativity, but I'm really just working in a patent office. So, yeah, I well, really when, I, when, when I would get off on these little, little um, jags, I would, you know, invent something that would make sense to me. Would And my dad would and my, and my dad would come in with, well, if you want to do it, great, but you have to go through the patent office. You have to do, you know, file X amount of number of papers. I'll, he's, he, he always offered to help with it. Um, but it just seemed insurmountable just to get through the bureaucracy of it all before I could actually get get to a tangible. Why did you have to do all of that? Um, self protection. Why? We ha- uh, anytime, anytime you invent anything or try to make anything, you know, and from an engineering point of view, that's going to go to industry, you have to protect yourself. Why? Because as soon as somebody sees what you're working on, when you make a present presentation, they can claim it as their own. And there's enough tra- uh, patent trolls in the U.S. that any idea you make is snatched up immediately and you you lose out. No, I, I look, I understand all the legalities of it. I understand that. No, I understand that. However, the reality is in the engineering field, uh, especially industrial engineering, you put an idea out there, it's going to get snatched up pretty quickly if there's any uh, mobility to it. Okay, so then your idea is out there. And you've contributed some great stuff to the world because people now have a tidal energy machine. Uh, and people okay. know that you did it, which means that you can they'll, you'll you'll in get a, great investors for your next gig, right? In a perfect world, that, that would be absolutely true. However, the world we live in, um, no, it would get it would get snatched up by somebody. Someone would hide it and you know, when, in, you know, bury it, hide it, and we'd still be running on coal for the next fifty years because the, the financial interest isn't there. The, no, the financial it, interest it, isn't there for energy tidal energy. No, because tidal energy is relatively cheap. Once you get past the zinc problem, um, it's relatively cheap compared to, you know, coal, nuclear, whatever. And then I can make as much oh, money. Oh, right. That's why we don't have email because email is more efficient <laughs> than physical mail. No, but email took a long. Oh, time. that's that's wait wait. That's why we don't have cell phones. Because cell phones are much more convenient and easy to use than rotary dial telephones, which was easier to use than the telegraph. That's why we don't have cars, because we have horses. No, there's a, there's a definite progression to these things. And Dude, there, there are you've interests. already told me everything I need to know. Okay, let's go. <laughs> All right, let's go. So, I'm going to just, you asked for it straight, okay? Yeah. So, I'm just like, you're fucking sapping my will to live. You're I'm just sorry. like, yes, but... Yes, but. Yes, but. Well, I got to do a patent. There's all this work. Right? 
Uh, people will just buy it up and put it on the shelf and it won't get anywhere. It didn't get anywhere anyway. Where is this great thing you invented? It's like you didn't do it at all. So what you're saying to me is, well, let's say there's a 50% or a 70% chance that this great invention that could have benefited mankind hugely would get snatched up by special interest groups and never get anywhere. Well, that's 50% more chance that it had by not doing anything, right? Correct. And filing a patent, not that complicated, right? I would disagree. Um, it's it's very convoluted now. Just in, just in the past five years, it's become more convoluted. How old are you? I'm almost 40. And when did you invent this machine? Uh, right around the age of 15, 16. So a quarter century ago. Yeah. So you understand what you just did to me? Yes. What did you just do to me? I completely uh, – train just derailed. Over the last five years, it's become really complicated. Well, what the fuck does that have to do with no, 25 years ago? No, because I haven't I, – in, in that time, I had gotten other jobs and stuff where it was kind of just put on, put on the back burner. Um, I'm not sure if you read my previous email. I got, I got, got really sick um, six years ago. And no, started, no, no, and I'm sorry for getting sick six years ago. We're talking about when you were 16. I'm, I'm saying – and I got – after turning 16, I got, you know, I started a computer business. I went into a whole other line of work and, you know, work 70, 80 hours a week. There wasn't any time for my little, you know, flights of fancy inventions anymore. Okay, so are you interested in solving the problem or do you just want to tell me that I'm wrong every time I say something? No, no, no. I'm just explaining to you that, you know, it was put on the back burner. You asked me what I had done between What do you mean it was put on the back burner? My little, my There's pro- no it. There's no it. You made a choice. Yes, I've made a choice. Now, would your father have uh, has uh, would your father have hired someone to make the patent for you? If he had the monetary means, absolutely. Did he have the monetary means? No, he did not. He had two heart attacks, and everything was lost. Oh, so he had no money. No. Okay. Did he have any friends or uh, any relatives or anyone uh, at his business or anyone he'd ever known, college roommate or anything, who might have been able to help with this process? Not really. My dad was pretty isolated. And why was your dad pretty isolated? Uh, he was brutally honest with people in uh, county, which is unadvisable. <laughs> oh, so he was like too too good and honest for people, and they didn't like. Yeah, him. He, he would just he would just speak his mind. You know, uh, social norms be damned, and he kind of ostracized himself in that way. So you're able to invent a tidal energy machine but not able to file a patent. The, I, I get lost on a lot of the bureaucracy. Um, my brain just doesn't wrap around it for whatever reason. Do you do your taxes? I pay someone to do them. Did you ever do your taxes? Uh, no, I've always paid someone to do them. I just dump the receipts and go through if it that If you way. had to do your taxes, do you think you could do your taxes? Um, probably. However, I'd probably get a knock, you know, knock on the door from the IRS six months later. So you don't do stuff that's difficult and complicated. Not 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 dealing with bureaucracy. I just I have to I have to see a reason for it, and in order to you know keep my mind focused. And if I don't see a reason for it, it goes out the window. All right. So um, given that almost everything that you want to do in life is going to involve some bureaucracy, then you're just telling me that you don't want to do stuff. 
No, it's it's it's, it's the level of bureaucracy that I'm, I'm able to cope with. And there's a it's a of, patent for God's sakes. <laughs> Nobody's saying you've got to learn the entire tax code, right? Yeah. So what you're saying is that what you're too good for patents? Uh, no, you no, just, no. It's just don't like them, so therefore you won't do it. I mean, no, no there's uh, there's a monetary outlay first, um, and it's a several year process. Several years to get a patent, really? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Twenty-five years ago, it was several years to get a patent. Yeah, it's been it's been yeah, the average has been between two and five years for as long as I can remember. All right. Well, if someone in the chat room or if Mike, you could look that up. I uh, yeah, by I, all means. I feel some skepticism, but then I'm maybe more learned in the realm of no. If you look, look, look at industrial patents, and you'll and you'll see that it takes forever. It's ridiculous. Well, but this was not an industrial patent. This was something a 16-year-old made, right? I mean, I've seen patents that are one page. I can't imagine they take five years. No, an industrial patent is a little bit different. It's got to meet a bunch of different requirements before it even gets approved. It's it's, it's neither here nor there. It's a specific thing to this little project. Um, Now, was your father a, a success by his own standards? I would think so. I mean, he, he, you know, he was able to support, uh, support a family of five on, on, a, on, a, on a salary in county, which, you know, a little, little more expensive than other places. Okay, so your father was uh, satisfied and, and would count himself a success? I would think so. What, what do you mean you would think so? Well, we've, we've talked about it, he and I. Um, and he doesn't have too many regrets or anything like that, so I would, I would consider that a mark of success. Okay, good. And would you consider yourself a success in your life? Yeah, I've done pretty well for myself. Okay, good. Now, do you feel that at some point you may end up doing better than your father? Yes. And how do you feel about that, and how does he feel about that? Oh, he, he, he's ecstatic about my, um, my life. He's always, you know, since we've, since we've had him have an adult relationship, uh, he's just become my biggest cheerleader. Right, right. And um, do you have other people in your life? Are you married at the moment? Uh, yes, how do I they am. Feel about no, I'm, um, mar- I'm married. I've been married for four years. Um, I have a wonderful partner. She's very supportive, supportive of me. And I, her, obviously. <laughs> um, right. We work well together. Well, you are presenting me with a mystery. Which That's, is fine, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, people are saying here in the search, uh, it says that it can take 24 months to get a patent. But of course, a patent pending is something we've all seen. Yes. Uh, but um, Mike says the entire procedure from application to grant will generally take over 12 months and in some cases over 18 months uh, and sometimes longer. But of course, you do have patent pending, right? So if you're first to file, uh, then... Um, it's still, uh, it's still, yeah. It's the, and again, the, the problem also you're you're borrowing on other people's technologies too. So there's a little more convolution in there too. It's it's not oh, a it's it's not a blanket. You know, here's my brand new idea. It doesn't borrow from anything. Let's go with it. It borrows on a lot of different disciplines and of other. Of course, patterns. like I please don't explain it to me like I'm three years old. Of <laughs> no, course, no, I no, understand. Okay. You didn't invent new fabric and new physics and a new planet and new dimensions and all that, right? Yes, I, I got it. Yeah. I got it. All right. Now, when you think back on what you did when you were 16, do you think that it was realistic? At the time, I thought so. When No, that's not what I asked. I'm sorry. Repeat. 
when you look back on it now, does it seem realistic? If I had some more financial resources to, available to me back then, yes. And have you ever thought of um, now, obviously, you have the money uh, to do it because you pay someone to do your taxes. Have you uh, thought of paying somebody to uh, apply for the patent for you? Yes, I have. Um, it's, 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 been a, it's been a back burner project, but it's definitely been something I've been keeping up with. I should be able to, fi to file sometime in the next six or seven months for something similar to my my original idea. I've got two other okay. patents. I've got two other patents that I've already secured, so it's not it's not completely foreign to me anymore. Right, right. Um, so, what about your mother? Oh, she's a different story. Um, not really. Yeah, no, your dad married her. Yeah, she no, can't I, be that I, different a story, right? No, well, no. She uh, pre, pr prior to uh, five, five or six years ago, mom was great, and then she had a serious health scare and became a crazy Christian. So my feelings are a little bit mixed now. What was the health scare? Uh, she almost died. She, uh, she had uh, liver failure. Uh, never, never a drink or anything like that. Just had liver failure from you know chronic health problems. And she almost died. <laughs> I mean, she was like in ICU for six weeks. And every day we were told, uh, you better come down to the hospital today because she's probably not going to make it through the night. Right. And what do you think? Um, so she was fine before. And what do you think changed in her that uh, she became a Christian? Um, I, I guess it was uh, her sister and the support structure she had with the, uh, her sister's church and kind of an abandonment right. of her previous you know, position of you know, empirical evidence and you know, all, all that other good stuff that I kind of adhere to. Right, right. Okay. So and I, did they divorce, right? Yeah, they did. Three years ago. <laughs> It was kind of weird because it was, it was one of those things where you thought they'd always be together because, you know, once you're married past 35 years, it's usually a safe assumption. And um, tell me about the kids you don't see. Uh, yeah, my children. Um, I was sperm jacked, for lack of a better term. I was making really good money. Can you tell me more and, about that? Just I yeah, mean, yeah. people need to know, men in particular need to know this. Yeah, no, um, I, was make, I was making really good money. Um, I was billing out at 175 an hour at the time. So fairly well for myself, um, had a, had a girl come into my life that had a bit of, you know, had some problems and stuff. I had to play white knight as I usually did back then, thought I would save her. Uh, she told me she couldn't get pregnant, that she was allergic to latex, yada, yada, yada. Uh, she got knocked up. Oh, I knocked her up and didn't realize it was my kid until, about three months after the kid was born, it was a 10-month pregnancy, so the math didn't quite work, and she was sleeping around at the time. Um, eventually did, you know, when we found out the child was mine, I took uh, her and the child into my home and raised my son for the first two years of his life. I got a decent job offer up in New York. I told her we were going to move up, move up to New York if it was cool with her. She said yes. I went up ahead of time, got a house, got everything situated, got the new job, and then she tells me she's knocked up again. And I said, but you had uh, the IUD thing uh, and you had the birth control stuff. 
And she's like, well, I stopped taking it, yada, yada, yada. I found out later that she had this whole plan just to get um, find somebody with money and get a paycheck for the rest of her life. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I can go into more detail, but it's pretty just hard. It's just horrifying. It is horrifying. I, I'm incredibly sorry for that. And uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's a horrendous, <clears throat> horrendous enslavement of men. Uh, and I'm incredibly sorry about this. I'm sure uh, in hindsight that you could see some oh, warning signs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've come so far. And what far. were they? Just for other oh. people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the way she would always expect me to pay for anything anytime we went anywhere. It, 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 it was – there was a lot of um, very selfish uh, things on her part where she would have an emotional breakdown, expect me to comfort her if I came to her with anything – it was well. My problem is this, and it's so much worse than yours. And any of your any of your problems kind of take a backseat to mine, and that was kind of the way our relationship went before the children were born. And um, exactly how hot was she? Uh, she was an eight. Yeah. And I was young, yeah. dumb, full okay. of cum. <laughs> Not for long, right? Yeah, yeah. Learn my learn my lesson. <laughs> I didn't yeah. proceed to play Johnny Appleseed after the second kid was born. Right, right. And um, I don't mean to delve into overly painful stuff, but um, no, by all means, stuff. It's fine. In your uh, in your ACE score, you had indicated uh, molestation. Yeah, um, had a my uh, one of my good friends, his older brother. He was like five or six years older. Really fucked around with uh, me and my little brothers. Uh, he would sit. He would sit on me and make my brothers touch themselves in front of me. He would threaten me with uh, just all sorts of horrible things. Um, he threatened to drown my pets if I said anything to anybody. And we had a dog who would roam the neighborhood. Um, back then, there weren't so many leash laws and stuff like that, so the threat was a real threat to me. So we kept our mouth shut until one day I finally, we finally said something to my parents. And my older cousin found out about it, and he went to the kid's house and beat the shit out of him, put him in the hospital. And the, the, both families kind of made the arrangement of we, they wouldn't sue us for uh, my, my cousin putting the kid in the hospital. We wouldn't sue him for the child molestation, and it kind of was kind of a wash. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and this was um, – was your friend crazy or just his brother? Um. In hindsight, we, I, I think I think there were some problems that we probably should have noticed. I'm pretty sure he was abused by his older brother. Uh, yeah, didn't, you think? Didn't, yeah, didn't know it at the time, but in you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, you know, from a, an adult perspective, yeah, I'd definitely say that he he was being abused as well. And what were those signs? Uh, when he would use the bathroom at our house, he would kind of pee all over everything. Uh, the kid's brother. Um, he was always very interested Wait. in. Sorry, um, there's your friend and then his his brother. So who would pee all over the bathroom? The little brother, the younger one, not not the molester. Oh, you, you, your friend? Yes. And how old was your friend when he was peeing all over the bathroom? Eleven. Eleven. Wow. Yeah. And how old the other the the other bro- older brother was? How old? Uh, sixteen, seventeen. Wow. Yeah, he he was an asshole. He's he, he's in jail now for, uh, I think. Uh, child pornography or something and he, he has been well, the past. fucking family jesus christ yeah no he's been fucking in jail family for, i mean god he's been in jail for get, 20 get years, the kid so, to a therapist no. get the kid some help whatever but jesus christ don't turn a fucking predator like that loose you might as well put a goddamn tiger in the daycare yeah no he was he was arrested at 18 and put in jail so he's been there ever since as far as i know good 
And how long did this how long did this go on for? Um, I just I don't want to say just uh, on and off for, during uh, the summer of uh, 80, 86, 85, 86. Wait, 85, 86, two years or either 85 or 86? Either 85. I'm not sure which, which year it was. It was either 85 or 86. So just the summer? Yeah. A couple of months kind of thing? Yeah. And did your parents ever get... Uh... No. The I know, fuck I is think... a 17-year-old doing playing with 10-year-olds? Well, we were over the friend's house playing uh, Nintendo. It was what, like, oh, it was so the like... guy never came to your house? No, no, the no, older no. Uh, he, he, all the neighborhood kids kind of like went for, went for, from house to house, so it wasn't that unusual. Even some of the older kids. Um, but we would go over their house to play Nintendo because they were the first ones in the na- neighborhood to have one. Oh yeah, no, you need the child trap, right? I'm yeah, sure yeah. the parents were not exactly blameless. Um, so did the older boy ever come to your house? Yeah, no, he never he never did anything at our house as far as any kind of molestation. But we had a pool. So he'd come and use the pool during the summer. Right. And your parents, uh, I would assume, of course, never felt that there was anything off about either of these kids? <sighs> to be honest, there were so many different, so many kids that would come and go. I don't think they had a really good handle on who was there, or who wasn't there, what day, or who. When I say a lot of kids, I mean, there were between 30 and 40 kids that would come in and out of our backyard. Yeah, I I don't you know <laughs> to tell you I don't feel that comfortable with that too much. No, and, and I, because it, statistically, if you've got forty kids, one of them is going to be a molester. At least. <laughs> yeah, knowing knowing that now. So parents limit the children around. You know, when there's a giant crowd. It's going to be at least one psycho in there statistically. Absolutely, but we're going back almost thirty years now, so it's a little bit, a little bit different time and place. Not that different. Oh, it was also kind of an, a throwback town too. It was very much Mayberry. I never saw anything like that on Mayberry. <laughs> no, I mean we knew we. An example, like we knew everybody in our neighborhood for a ten block radius around our house, like first name. And I would say name. you didn't know any of them. <laughs> That's not. I mean, was there anything weird about the family? Yeah, they were they were a little bit off. There, were, there was definitely some telltale signs there. But again, this is you know an adult looking back on a childhood. And my parents, you know, both parents, mom and dad worked, and my grandparents were you know were around to watch, keep an eye on us. And it would just be this mass of kids that would come in and out. We'd play. We'd play all sorts of games outside. We play baseball, football, whatever. Tag, manhunt, all that stuff. Now you get that all you do is defend this stuff, right? I I I, I see that. Um, it's not really a defense. I don't. I don't think you do. Okay. I don't think you do. Because I don't know if you've listened to this show much at all. Mm-hmm. But nobody gets to defend child abuse in this neighborhood. No, I get that. I'm not, I'm okay. I, not defending the abuse. I was just trying to explain the situation. Maybe I did it poorly. No, no, you're defending the abuse. I'm not saying you're defending the abuser. Okay. Right, he got beaten up and blah, 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 right? Yeah. But it's your parents' job to keep you safe. Yes. It's your parents' job to keep you safe, and they failed about as bad as they can fail. I I agree. 
Okay, so why are you giving me all of this different time, different values, Maybury, blah, 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 kids all over, right? Not you just give me a whole smoke screen. All right, I, didn't, I don't see it that way, but I'll, I'll... Well, did you express any culpability for your parents? No, but I, we didn't really get into that, I didn't think. Um, we definitely... I definitely, you know, got mad at them about it. Okay, listen, the fact. if you okay. want to have a conversation with me, you've got to stop bullshitting me, okay? I just had this whole speech about not having bullshit in my life. So I got to try and snap you out of this daze. Because you're on autopilot right now. Do, do you feel that? Not really. You don't feel that at all. You don't feel that you're just making stuff up in the moment to minimize discomfort for you. No. Do you understand that you were defending your parents, that you were making excuses for them and not assigning them any culpability at all? No, but now that you say it, I kind of see where you're coming from. So, yes. Not where I'm coming from. Not where I'm coming from. What you were doing. Mm Hmm. Right. Because where I'm coming from is like, well, it's kind of subjective. I like this piece of art. Well, I can see how you might like it, though I don't. This is not a subjective thing. Right. Correct. So. (sighs) Everything that you have told me about your past, almost without exception. And I don't mean this with any hostility. No, I don't. Almost everything you've told me about your past is with excuses. Why didn't you do this? Well, the patent office is complicated. Could your dad have helped you? Well, my dad didn't have any money. Why? Because he had two heart attacks. Why did your mom turn crazy? Well, because she had a near-death experience. Fuck, I had a near-death experience. You don't see me kissing Jesus' feet this year. So did I, Steph. I'm not kissing Jesus' feet either. Right. So don't give me this bullshit about it's all causal and nobody's making any choices. People made choices. But all you're doing is explaining it like everybody is just robots being programmed by circumstances. The only person in this entire conversation, which we've touched on probably a dozen people or actually dozens and dozens of people, if you count the whole town, there's only one person you've held morally culpable. And that person was a minor. Well, that was my experience at the time. Um as I've become an adult, I've had conversations with my parents about it. I've just talked about it in depth with both of them and how upset I was that they didn't have my back when I was a little kid. We've had those conversations. So why isn't that part of this conversation? Well, I hadn't felt that we come, we've come to that yet. You hadn't felt we'd come to that yet? Well, why are you so passive? Did you not know that you making excuses for your parents' failure to protect you as a child was going to meet with some resistance? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so don't tell me we didn't come to it when you're basically raving a big red flag in front of my face. I'm sorry. It wasn't wasn't intended that way. I apologize. Okay. So what is it that you would like from me at the moment? Okay, I just wanted to... I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm not able to connect with you because... Um, it feels, my experience is that it's just just deflection, 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 minimization, minimization, deflection, deflection, deflection. We can't connect at the moment. I don't know if you feel connected. Oh, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm just having a really difficult time with this. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm very self-aware of everything. I just. 
you're very self-aware. That's your experience that you're very self-aware of things. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant of what's happened. I'm, you know, I know how I internalize things. I don't know. What was it that caused you to tell your parents about the abuse, the sexual abuse? Just a line was crossed, and at that point, um, I, I couldn't stand to see my little brothers being touched that way, and it really bothered me. So I said, you know, to hell, you know, if he wants to hurt my dog, he's going to hurt my dog, and, uh, you know, consequences would be damned. I'm just going to go and say something. And how did your cousin find out about it, who went and assaulted the young man? Uh, he heard um, my mom and my aunt crying about it. When I, when I told them, and he, he was kind of listening in from upstairs. He wasn't that much older. He was probably the, about the same age as the molester. He was 16 or 17 at the time himself. And so it was the same night that you told? Yes. Yes. Your parents, they cried about it, or the women cried about it. The boy heard it. Yes. And he and went he, over and attacked yes. the molester? Yes. And put him in the hospital, not just, you know, it was pretty severe. And um, I'm going to assume that nobody knew that was occurring. No, it was it was it was very. I kept you know quiet. Um, the the stupid mentality at the time was just uh, it was outrageous. It was you know this is you know dirty laundry not to be aired. You know that that whole line of bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry, could you just repeat that? I said it was the whole, you know, no airing of dirty lawn, you know, family dirty laundry type thing. So it was that sort of bullshit. Do you think they would have, if the molester had not been beaten up, do you think your parents would have called the cops? Yes. But then they weren't allowed to call the cops because of the assault or they felt they couldn't? Well, they... they, They had called our, my uncle Tim, who was a, who was a cop in the, in the, in the area. And by the time he, they had called him and he was on his way over to come talk to us, my uh, cousin had already gone over and beat the shit out of uh, the kid. And I assume that the kid's parents weren't home and the kid was no, alone? No, no, no. And... Yeah, the kid was alone. And he just knocked on the door and said, hey, it's so-and-so. The kid opened the door. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think he even knocked on the door. I think he just went into the house. He knew, where, you know, he knew the house pretty well. He'd been over there before himself to play games or whatever. And just kind of forced his way in and just found the kid and beat the shit out of him. And do you have any emotional experience of the stuff you're telling me? Oh yes. I, 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 right now I'm just, I'm kind of reliving it. So I'm getting a little bit jostled, angry again. Well, tell me what your emotional experience is of the, of our conversation and of what you're saying. Well, our conversation, I'm just trying to get, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can be difficult for me to talk to people. Um, I, I can come off a little bit assholey. Um, and reliving some of the stuff is just it's it's difficult still i've only recently been able to talk about it to other people like in the past you know seven eight years so it's 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 still pretty raw and how's your sexuality i'm pretty good um my, my, my wife and i are fairly active and what does she do uh she's a webcam model I know you might poo-poo on that, but that was her. That was her thing. It's what she enjoys doing. She makes decent money at it. Although I do believe that you can get some webcam models to poo-poo. 
Um, yeah, no, she hasn't, sure what, she hasn't got that route, but uh, I'm not sure what you mean when you say I would poo poo on that. Well, I, I heard your conversation previously with uh, another webcam model, and you didn't seem too supportive of the idea. And uh, how did you meet her? Uh, we met at a show. Uh, what is a show? I'm not sure. Oh, I'm what sorry. Um, I thought I said my email. Um, I performed the show, and we met there. Oh, so you were um, a singing in, yeah. a, in a show. Is that right? Well, I, was, I was on stage performing, and then we met after the show. Who were you playing? Uh, Brad. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's been my And so you met after my, the show. Escape. Yes. And um, how long ago was that? Uh, five years ago. And was she webcam modeling at the time? No. What was she doing at the time? Um, I had hired her to work at a movie theater. She had just finished college, and I ran a theater, and I hired her. So she's quite a bit younger, I assume. Yeah, 13 years. Right. And when did she start doing the webcam modeling? Uh, two years ago. And what was it, uh, do you think, that uh, gave her that as a thought for income? Um, she had been friends with a dominatrix, up, a professional dominatrix, and she was very intrigued. She's always, she's always kind of like le- le- uh, leaned toward the sex positive stuff. And it was, you know, we, we went over to this dominatrix's house one day and, you know, they, they started chatting about, you know, what she does and how she, you know, she does some webcam modeling too. And my wife expressed an interest. And she kind of got it, you know, kind of got into it. Um, and again, she's wait. Made a, so she wait. Hang on. So she expressed an interest to the dominatrix friend. Yes. Before she talked about it with you. Well, it was in that conversation. We were both part of it. I was part of the conversation as well. No, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> but she didn't sort of say later. Well, that would be something I'd be interested in before she talked about it with the dominatrix. She no, she yeah. She we had conversations previous uh, to talking with with the dominatrix. She was interested in kind of learning about it and seeing if it was something that she'd be interested in. So we had wait. Discussed, so we, hang sorry. on. So your your wife your wife had a conversation with you prior to chatting with the dominatrix. Oh, many, yeah, about many, her desire to do yes, yes webcam porn, right? Yes, many conversations, not just like one or two. We t- and we what talked. were your thoughts about it? Um, I've always been, you know, if, if, if it's something you want to do and it's not hurt, it's not hurting you. It's, you know, it's not hurting me. It's not hurting you. You know, it doesn't hurt anybody. And yeah, go ahead. Give it a try. If it's something you want to do. Um, she's pierced and tattooed. So, you know, a lot of her job opportunities are going to be in the alternative fields. How pierced and tattooed is she? Uh, she had the nose ring, the eyebrow ring, um, tattoos up one arm, nothing, nothing on her neck or face, but enough to wear. You know, getting jobs outside of the alternative, you know, community would be a little bit difficult. Uh, you guys uh, thinking about having children at no, any point? No, 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 no children, no, no children. I have my two. That's an, that's enough. And she doesn't want kids, I see. No, not at all. And does she work outside of your home? No, she works. We have a studio set up in one of the rooms. And she works while you're home? Yes. And does she use headphones? No, she has her studio. It's it's pretty it's pretty. Uh, we baffled it pretty well, so the sound doesn't travel. 
But you can be working at home. Oh yes, I, uh, I work from I work on your from, writing. Yes, I have. My sorry, own, if I, I can have, just finish my sentence, please. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, so you'd be working at home, and your wife is coaxing men to masturbate to orgasm, like in the next room or two rooms over. A couple rooms over. Right. And um, it. I mean. It's no issue to you, right? I assume. No, not at all. Uh, you think it's fine? Yeah, I support her 100%. She loves it. She makes good money at it. And what do you think the plan is? Uh, I assume that she didn't go to university to study web she porn. Did, no, she, uh, she, she did go to college. She's got, a ba- she's got a bachelor's. And what does she have a bachelor's in? Uh, computer science. So she wanted to be a programmer. At one point, yes. So she wanted to kind of use her brain, not her tits, right? Yes, and she did for a number of years. It just she makes more money doing this. Yeah, well, you can make more money robbing a bank. That doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that's the right thing to do. So she's basically just using her tits and her ass rather than her brain, right? Yeah, if she's going to uh, she's going to school for sex therapy stuff now, and that's kind of like the end goal for her. To be a sex therapist. Correct. And what does that mean, being a sex therapist? Um, talk people through their uh, sexual problems, kind of help help people out. She's very open and uh, very personable. There's nothing. There's nothing really taboo with her. No, I get that. <laughs> I get that. And what was her uh, sexual history as a child? Uh, it was pretty horrible. She was molested right. by her step- stepfather. Um, well, she was ignored. You know. Her, 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 her family is a piece of work. And do you think that her capacity for web pornography, is it all related to her having been raped as a child? Oh, absolutely. I, I, think, I think it's So basically she, I, she's exploiting her prior trauma, as are you, in terms of the fact that it makes good money. Uh, you're exploiting her prior, prior trauma for money, right? I don't. I don't think of that that way because it's something that she's expressed. You just told me that it was that. You just told me that her capacity to do web porn is entirely based upon being raped as a child. Yes, because she's taken ownership of it, and this is what she wants to do. But what does that mean? She's taken ownership of it. She's not letting it become. How do I put this? Um, I, I'm. I'm just just trying to find words to properly express this. It's something I I kind of just know when it's hard to. No, I understand. Like, I take your time. I mean, it's a a tough topic, and I appreciate you talking about it. So certainly, no. I don't um, mean to sort of have some swinging Victorian Gestapo light bulb over your head. So take your time. Okay, thank you for that. No, uh, she's she's accepted that she can't change her past. Um, The the her abuser died a, a few, you know, right before she started doing the porn. Uh, that may that may fa- definitely factor into it. Um, it was something. It's something that still bothers her. She still has issues with it. We talk. We talk about it. We you know have our own quiet time and discuss our personal issues with each other. Uh, she feel she feels that this is a way of, in some ways, getting back at her abuser because she does you know she does do the dominatrix stuff too, online, and it's kind of a way for of her getting back at uh, her stepfather, as fucked up as that may sound. Does it sound fucked up to you? Uh, I, I definitely see where she's coming from with it. 
So looking looking from a societal point of view, yeah, but knowing knowing her and knowing how she this is her way of coping with it, no. Wait, wait. <laughs> coping with it getting back at her rapist does not sound exactly to me like how you described it earlier, which is taking control of it or whatever it was, right? Well, that, that, that's kind of what I mean. Uh, she's taking, you know, taking possession of it, and this is how she chooses to to act on it. Well, no, but that's very value neutral, right? So if she is um, exploiting her sexuality because her sexuality was exploited when she was a child, and she's doing this, and this started, how long after her rapist died did this start? <sighs> Several months. Four Once. or five, four or five, yeah. Do you think that she was in a good state to make a decision like that uh, well, after she, her rapist died? She had been talking about it, doing it before the rapist died. I think once the no, rapist. No, no, I understand that. Do you think that she was in a good and healthy mental state to make a decision about going into web porn when her child rapist had recently died? In hindsight, probably not. At the time, I was very sick, so I wasn't putting a whole lot of. Um, deeper thought into it. But this is what's frustrating about chatting with you is that you say this stuff like it's perfectly normal. And then when I ask you if you think it's normal, you say no, right? Which means I basically have to try and catch the the abnormalities in the conversation and, and circle you back to them. No, I get that. I'm, I, like I said, I, I do have difficulty, you know, expressing things with people. I just, I type better than I talk. Well, that's uh, kind of another excuse, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when you said, you know, tatted and, and pierced and all that, not 100%, but um, most people, in fact, I would say 100% off the top of my head of women I know who've had significant tattoos were sexually abused as children. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that. And do you think that somebody who was, I assume that this was not, uh, I mean, the molestation you experienced was a horrendous enough, but was the molestation that your wife experienced uh, on the level of uh, sexual penetration, uh, yeah, like no, full it, on it, rape? Yeah, it was full on, it was full on rape. And was it uh, like rape plus Extra horror on the side, uh, torture, domination, uh, sadism. Yeah. All right, um, I can I can touch on this with you if I get, if I get if I get too into it, I'm going to start tearing tearing up because it's just it's really horrible, and I I want to try to maintain some composure. Um, I don't it, want it, you to maintain composure. You have been too fucking composed in the whole goddamn <laughs> conversation. Please try not to maintain composure. Uh, okay, no, it's absolutely horrifying. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was a. Tw- the worst possible person you can imagine. Completely evil, sadistic. He was a drug addict. Uh, his her, her mother wasn't any worse. You know, any better. She was, you know, the worst possible mother. Her her natural father is the worst possible natural father ever. Uh, she had a horrific childhood, and I, it, she it breaks my heart every time we talk about it. Absolutely, it breaks my heart. Do you think it's healthy for her to be doing what she's doing with the history she had? Yes, I do. Um, as kooky as that may sound, I, I do. She, she's, she's happy. She's enjoying things. She, she's vibrant. She has loved- she ever been to? Uh, has she ever done any therapy? Yeah, 
she went to uh, therapy for four years, and they, they talked about this while, while she was starting up with the porn stuff, and her therapist said it was a good idea. I, maybe not the greatest therapist in the world if that's the way you're going to look at it, but I'm, she's happy. She is legitimately happy. How long ago did her sadistic child rapist die? Uh, two and a half years ago. All right. Well, um, I'm obviously uh, – <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to talk to you into, you know, questioning uh, these particular things or, or, I mean, you, you feel it's important to support her. You say she's happy that she has no problems. So therapist says, great, go into, go into webcam porn two and a half months after the man who tortured and raped you as a child died. That seems great. That seems like a wonderfully healthy idea. Couldn't, couldn't possibly be anything dysfunctional about that. Um, so if you are um, entirely on board with this, doesn't sound like it's going to be anything I'm going to be able to help uh, change your mind about. But um, with regards to our first, uh, your first question. Yes. If it is true, if it is true, and I believe that it is true, which is nothing. I, I accept that. It's just my perspective. Mm-hmm. If it is true that you are and your wife are profiting off the sexual shell of a human being, tortured and raped as a child, offering herself up for more anonymous sex, virtual sex, if you're not able to take a stand on that and perhaps get her into a field where things are less hypersexualized, then the self-sabotage may come from sabotaging your wife, sabotaging her chance to really deal with her demons. Look, the sex-positive stuff, sex is great. Sex is wonderful. Sex, as I've said before, is the stuff that makes up for taxes, <laughs> right? So uh, I don't think I've been prudish uh, in the show. I think that there are consequences. I think that there's pluses and minuses to various decisions. But I don't think that making a decision about public sexuality for money is a wise thing to do within two and a half months of your rapist dying, your torture rapist dying, getting into domination and submission role plays with people when you were tortured and raped as a child, I don't think is particularly healthy. If there's some validity in that perspective, and uh, I've massive, enormous, bottomless sympathy for your wife, right? I mean, I mean, I get, I mean, obviously not to as great a degree as you do because you're married to her, but I get what an unbelievably hellacious and horrendous childhood she had. Oh, shit. Yeah. But I wonder, yeah, it is beyond words. And I wonder the degree to which your self-sabotage is more to do with your choice of women than it is to do with your screenplays. Because you had one woman who sperm jacked you twice and then dragged your ass backwards through the family court system and took you for, I Everything. imagine, a fair chunk of change e- 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 and yeah, sanity. Yeah. 
Yeah. So one woman rapes you with the legal system. Another woman is yelling at men to jack off on her virtual boots or whatever the hell goes on in these uh, situations and who was raped as a child. Yeah, I think you got some unprocessed stuff. I mean, why would you have so much in common with these dysfunctional and disturbed women? Well, like it, it, part of it goes back to my nature of always pr- protecting the little guy or, you know, finding the, you know, the damaged person and trying to help them up. Yes, but you understand you're the damaged person. I understand that. I, I don't I, know that you do. Mm. There may be there may be some truth to that. Because if you did, you wouldn't be acting it out with the women. It's it's the the white knights. It's it's. Hmm. Well, first of all, it's generally the moms they're trying to save, but more fundamentally, it's themselves. They're trying to avoid dealing with the pain of the past by being in perpetual rescue mode to other people. Oh, I totally get that. I do. Okay, good. Well, then my suggestion would be to to try and work on some of that pain of the past uh, and not focus on other people's dysfunction as much. That would be my uh, my sole suggestion as far as the self-sabotage goes. A- any strategies on that? Um, it's all well and good to say, you know, say work on it, but how? I can't, I can't go and see a therapist, unfortunately. I do have a security clearance, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with U.S. security clearance stuff. You see a therapist and you're out. Well, I mean, there's stuff that you can do. Uh, as I mentioned before, Nathaniel Brandon has great workbooks. Um, other people have uh, great workbooks that you can uh, work on. But I think that you, I mean, you're incredibly intelligent and you're very, very verbally astute, obviously. Thank you. And I think, well, it's a compliment, but not a compliment, right? Yeah, I get that. I think you kind of need to slow down a little bit. I think you race ahead of your emotions. I think you have the capacity to build these cloud cathedrals of language that are very convincing to other people. And because of your intelligence and verbal skill, you are very convincing to other people. But but I think that you have an automatic habit of minimizing emotional connection and content. Could you explain that a little and further? And you do that, you do that by m- minimizing people's moral responsibility and, and therefore your own. And, and as a child, you right, did not have, I mean, you were a victim. I completely get all of that. Yeah. But your parents weren't. The other parents, the entire community, what you say, this Mayberry style town, Look, there was, I mean, who knows how many kids this son of a bitch oh, had molested absolutely. before I, he was 16 or 17. This guy's moving through the whole fucking town. It's entirely possible. Um, but I, I should clarify, when I say May, Mayberry, I said Mayberry, I should, I should have said Mayberry on the surface, Derry, Maine, in the, in, you know, just beneath. If you get no, no, I, I get that. You don't have to tell me that. Okay. I mean, there was a there was a child there was a child predator moving entirely conveniently and easily through this whole situation. Okay, I just wanted to be clear on that. I didn't want you to think that I thought it was all you know Pollyanna. It was very much a, you know more of a dairy main just below the surface than a the Mayberry presented right. on so the surface. You know, you're doing that again now, right? What am I doing again? I was just trying to. Well, I'm trying to do some. I'm trying to sort of slow things down. 
and connect and you're jumping off on saying completely obvious things okay in in a highly rapid and emotionally empty speech like you again you're sort of as i said you're kind of deflecting and kind of defensive i'll slow down i'm sorry continue please no that's okay i mean i, I don't think that we're going to get much of an emotional connection and please understand this could be entirely my fault i'm just sort of pointing out the um lack of emotional connection for the people who are listening to this right so that they understand that i'm aware that okay. there isn't an emotional connection but uh i to me to me at least mm-hmm. uh, i i think that um i think you have a lot of anger uh, in my humble opinion oh yeah, i have some guy I, on the I, internet. no no you nailed that you know you nailed it on the head on that one i definitely do that, yeah, I think you have a lot of anger, and um, I think that you have gone a little bit too far into the live and let live philosophy. Yeah. I would not want a lover of mine sexually gratifying other men in the next room. That's gross. That's humiliating. I think it's highly dysfunctional. And I think one day you're going to wake up and be repulsed by it. And I don't think it's healthy for her. My opinion, I'm not going to say I've got some ironclad proof. And I think that if you were to connect with that anger, it wouldn't be B-movie scripts. I think the B-movie scripts come out of uh, the avoidance of that. I think if you connect with your anger, which means assigning moral responsibility for the people who are supposed to be protecting you, then I think you'll have a greater power and capacity as a writer and a greater power and capacity to connect with other people as a human being. Again, just my opinion. I, there's nothing syllogistical about any of that. No, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called you if I didn't respect your opinion, Steph. I really wouldn't. <laughs> it's something to think on. All right. Well, so keep us posted if you can, and I really appreciate you speaking so uh, honestly about what you're experiencing, and I think we can do one more call. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. we got one more person on the line. Um, Up next is Christina, and she wrote in and asked, are there any methods you would recommend to use in order for anger to not get out of control? Hmm. Well, self-knowledge, next! (laughs) Just, uh, can you give me an example where you do get angry? Um, I get angry when someone insults me and, um, and then I try and tell them like, not like that. Or if someone's trying to start an argument with me and I tell them not, but I'm not wanting to start an argument, I would rather just like talk things out. Um, and what sort of insults do you, uh, receive? Um, that the friends I have now aren't going to last, that I'm not going to get a job, that I don't take care of my pets, um, that I'm exactly like my father. Um, like and things- who says that to you? Um, it was an ex of mine. Um, we were friends, and um, but we're not friends anymore <laughs> for obvious reasons. Was he, um, was he insulting you while you were friends? Yes, and we dated. So what am I? What am I? What am I going to say about that, Christina? That he's not a good friend. <laughs> uh, I would say that's right, except for two words. Well, one, he's not a friend. 
True. Right. Listen, listen, I mean, just, just before we go on, and I've, I've looked at your ACE score and all that, we can touch on that if you like, but this is really, really important. Friends don't get to insult you. Okay. Right. Mike, have you ever insulted me? No. And you've have never I insulted, ever insulted me. You? No, never happened. We ever gang up on Stoyan? Well, there was that one time now. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, he, he paid for it and it was over webcam, so that's different. Um, but we don't. Can you imagine me insulting you? It's so outside my realm of who you are and what our relationship is that it would, if you did it, it would be like, what? Like, is this a joke? What's, I wouldn't even, right. wouldn't even register. It's weird. It would be weird, right? It wouldn't yeah. make any sense, right? Um. Other than my daughter calling me the world's worst dancer, um, in general within our house, I mean, there's it just doesn't it doesn't happen. Doesn't mean we don't we disagree, and sometimes we can like once or twice a year, my wife and I will have a disagreement that lasts more than ten minutes. But the idea in the idea that that uh, this would be an insult household or household where there were insults uh, is like don't accept any insults like that's, that's why he's not in like, my life anymore no i get that but you said he's not a good friend like he could be an okay friend or an indifferent friend like i just really want to make that line solid and you are right and i just try to give people the benefit of the doubt because i'm not perfect either and when i lose like when i get angry and i lose control it's not a pleasant sight um, no, I get it. I get it. And the reason that I want you to have standards for other people is so that you have standards for yourself. Yes, that makes sense. Right. Because so many people, when I say no, no insults, are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that's because, like you, they reflect on their own behavior and they say, ooh, right? Now, does this and mean that- I never insult people? I do insult people, but I don't insult people I'm friends with, right? <laughs> I do make fun of and insult people who are doing rambunctiously idiotic stuff, right? And right, people can make fun of me when I'm doing rambunctiously idiotic stuff. But if you have a standard called no insults for your friends, then that's kind of a challenge for you because then you say well i guess i insult so i guess i'm not perfect so i can't have that standard for other people and then the whole thing collapses again right yes but i also realize that when someone insults someone else it has to kind of do with them themselves it doesn't really have to do with the person they're insulting well no it does in a way and i agree with you because obviously people who insult are unhappy with themselves but in Insulting someone requires, I mean, this is one of the reasons why insults just completely fail the universality test, right? Which is when you insult someone, particularly when you insult them morally, like if if I said to you, um, oh, Christina, you just use people, right? Now, if you were a sociopath, which you're not, obviously, (laughs) if you were a sociopath, you'd say, yeah, like if someone comes up to me and say, Steph, you just use your tablet, what would I say? Yes, I do. <laughs> I certainly do. You have completely stated an obvious thing. I have no problem with it. Uh, I, I, I find it rather re- boring and redundant. I kind of bought it to use, right? Yes. So if I were to say to you, 
Christina, you just use people. Well, if you were a user and a manipulator and you'd say, well, guilty as charged, that's what I do, right? I mean, you just had that waitress bring you the food you wanted and you didn't care about her at all. It's like, yeah, that's because I'm a customer. Well, right? you know, there like, to serve oh, me, right? Oh. Right, right. So so the, the insults. Now, if if I knew you really cared about people and wanted didn't want to be a user, then I would insult you by saying you use people. Now, I would only insult you if I knew that that would bother you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what. So why he did. it is about when someone insults you, it is about them, but it's also about you and that they have to know what you value in order to deny those values for you, in order to oppose those values to you, right? Yes. But I also wanted to um, ask, like, what healthy methods would you recommend to release anger? Well, um, if you're stuck outside and you're very fair-skinned and you have no sunscreen, what's the best way to not get a sunburn? Shade. <laughs> you get away from the sun, and by golly, you're not going to have a sunburn, right? True. <laughs> right. So the very first thing to do if you have a temper problem is to look around you and say, who provokes me? Okay. So who provokes you? You don't have to give me names, but are there people around you? Who you get angry at. Yes. Um, my okay. sister, I guess. Your sister provokes you, okay. Oh, you, you get angry around your sister? Um, she has a mental condition that I have never been able to understand. Or, um, like, it's hard to have a relationship with her because everything resolves around her. And it's hard for her to understand where other people are coming from. So I get kind of frustrated with her. Wait. Is she selfish? Is that what you mean? She, no, but yes. I, like, she does care about other people. She, like, they determined her as mentally challenged. So she doesn't um, understand things like you or I would. Um, like, when, I, when my mom died, um, she didn't really understand that impact. Um, she. Oh, so she, she wait, is, sorry, does she have, like, a uh, low IQ, cognitively deficient in general? Um, yes. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry about that. That's, that's very hard. Very hard situation. Yeah, it must be for her as well, but, um, what else? Who else? Um, certain, like some friends, like, um, one friend, he made me wait for him for two hours and he wondered why I was upset (laughs) about waiting for so long. So. Wait, wait, um, he wondered why you were upset? Yeah. <laughs> don't 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 get me started on people being late. I've I know, literally right? rant my in my head will <laughs> simply spin and rotate and all the words will come out of my spinal cord uh, because lateness just drives me crazy. And look, I mean, I'm aware of sometimes I'm late. We get technical problems with the show, but people who are like an hour or two late. Yeah, exactly. Oh I, my god. I will give you it, at like, least oh an my hour, god. But two hours is kind of pushing it. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I remember in the past I've <laughs> I've had people who were an hour away who phoned up an hour after they were supposed to be here to say that they were just on their way. Oh, my God. And it's almost like I don't even know what to say to people like that. 
Like, I don't know what to say to people like that. Because I don't know what it means when people don't understand that being late is incredibly rude. Because when you're late, you're saying, well, my time's important, but your time doesn't matter. It's it's a... um, a form of dominance. It's a form of uh, pecking order. It's a form of superiority. And uh, holy crap, um, it just drives me nuts. Now, again, I'm late, obviously, like everyone else. But I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so apologetic. And mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and um, if, uh, if somebody was two hours late and, and didn't understand why I was bothered, I... I I mean, that person's got something seriously wrong with their brain. Yeah. Like, we we still talk, but it's, like, just through, like, text messaging um, because I don't want to go through that again where it's, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to wait. Yeah, listen, this is, this is the – I'm sorry, you sound delightfully youthful, but, but this is something that I wish people had told me earlier, that little things are big things in life. Little things are big things. Right, somebody who's chronically late, it's a big thing. Now, you may choose to live with it, you may choose, but it's a big thing. And it indicates significant interpersonal dysfunction. Well, it does say a lot about them, right? So it says a lot about their character and Well, it's just their capacity for empathy. Mm, yes. Right. I mean, if you made him wait for two hours, he'd be really upset. But he doesn't fundamentally get that you have the same emotional apparatus. He doesn't get that you're the same fucking species. <laughs> no, maybe, seriously. Maybe he thinks I mean, he's an alien. Who knows? <laughs> no, I mean, if, if, I, if I'm an hour, let's say I have a pet budgie, which I had when I was a teenager. Laura, how are you? Right. But if I have a pet budgie and I'm home an hour late, I don't think the budgie gives much of a crap. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because there are different species, well, right? Pets don't, pets don't have a sense of time, so. Well, I'm sure some do, right? But but not pets. And sorry, not not birds. But probably not. Like I, I may be like, oh, I'm sorry, but but right. I mean, because there are different species from me, so right. I get like if somebody was supposed to meet me and they were an hour late, I'd be like, right. But if I come home an hour late for my birds, well, it's a bird, right? Different species. But people who like little things are big things. Like, does someone know how to buy you a present that you like? That's a big thing. Does someone know how to present themselves in social situations? That's a big thing. Does someone's taste in music is a big thing. Someone's tattoos are a big thing. Someone's piercings are a big thing. Someone's wardrobe is a big thing. Everything is screaming at us all day and all night. These Mm -hmm. giant big things. And we often will just kind of like, I don't know, they have quirks, right? And I kick myself sometimes thinking back in the past about the number of big things I glossed over in people and what a terrible idea that was. So anyway, just the, the lateness thing. I mean, why are you even texting with the guy? 
like I said, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. But well, okay, but tell me what that means. That's just a phrase. I don't know what that means. Um. Well, because I I mess up in friendships and all relationships um, because of my anger. Um, no, no, hang on. See, you've already deviated from. I'm sorry to interrupt you right after I asked you okay. your question, Christina, but. What you said to me was he didn't know why you were upset. Yes. So already you're in a different category because you say, well, I screw up things, right? But he doesn't even know he screwed something up, does he? No. So that's not the same at all. Right. So saying, well, I'm going to forgive him because I screw up too. He doesn't even get that he did something wrong or rude or inconsiderate, right? He's like, why? Sometimes people are late. What's the problem? I don't understand. Right? Exactly. That was his response. (laughs) So you are not giving him the benefit of the doubt because you make mistakes, right? Because he doesn't even admit or is aware that he's made a mistake. I didn't think of it like that, but you're right. All right. Good. (laughs) This is not the benefit of the doubt. This is the subsidization of sociopathy. But anyway. What? Who else um, bothers you? My father. Oh, gosh, that's a big one. <laughs> um, he's not in my life, and that's his choice. Um, but everyone's, oh, like, everyone has told me that it's his loss, but it's mine as well. Because I desperately crave for him to be in my life. Though I know he's not um, a healthy person to be in my life. He's an alcoholic, a very angry alcoholic at that. Um, but I thought that he would really wake up and change when he saw what I was doing for my mom. I put my life on hold for her. I quit school. I quit my job to be there for her and I watched her die. And I thought that he would grasp that and want to, you know, fulfill that role of being a father, but he didn't. So, and I have tried to reach out to him and he just, he just doesn't reciprocate. Um, I was trying to test him recently. His birthday was in June and Father's Day was in June and I didn't call him. And I'm like, okay, maybe he'll call me and yell at me. At least I'll get some sort of attention. But I didn't even get that. So. And why do you think it's so hard for you to learn that lesson? Because um, he's my father. <laughs> um, because I no, really no, don't have no, any... No. No, No, because, sorry to interrupt again, but you're using the word in two two different ways, right? Right. So father can be obviously sperm donor, right? Biological father. But father can also be, in the term that you're using it, you're talking about the act of parenting, right? In other words, fathering, right? Yes. Being a father, not just having sperm, right? Okay, so so this is in a very important distinction. Like if I was born from a test tube, right, and 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 then the guy who was the sperm donor came and said, uh, "I need five thousand dollars from you." What would I say? No. <laughs> and he'd say, "But I'm your father." And then what would I say? You would probably call him that. Well, you'd tell him that he's a sperm donor and not your father. Um, right, because he didn't actually 
bother do you. Do the fathering. Yeah. I, and I know that. I'm aware of that with my own, I guess, sperm donor. Everybody I, tells me, you know, I'm sorry to make you take the blame for this, but everybody keeps telling me they know stuff. <laughs> and what do I keep saying? I don't think you do. I know that intellectually. I get this. I understand this. I know this intellectually. Oh, I understand that. No, I get that. No, I understand that. (laughs) But then you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. It's like people say, by God, I've got to go south, right? (laughs) I got to get south. South is paradise. I got a compass and the compass is pointing north. So I'm going to walk that way. Right. And I say, um, Actually, south is the opposite way. I know that. And they keep walking north. And it's like, I don't think you do know that. Otherwise, you turn around. (laughs) Yeah. It's something I have been struggling with. Um, Not going to (laughs) lie. Obviously. Um. (laughs) Good. Let's start doing that. (laughs) Look, when I was a kid, I mean, I don't remember my dad being around. He left when I was, I don't know, six months old or whatever. I was in boarding school when I was six, and we got a haircut every Saturday, and then we had to write a letter to our parents, right? So I wrote a letter to my mom, said, Dear Mom. I wrote a letter to my dad. I said, Dear, his first name. Let's just say Bob, right? Dear Bob. And people were like, you can't send that. He's your father, right? And I didn't understand what they were talking about. I mean, I wasn't trying to be obtuse. No. His I, name is Bob. Yeah, because I would... So I, I would write, Dear Bob, here's what I did in school. But he's your father. And I referred to him because he was my my mom's ex-husband, so I referred to him as my ex-father. Because hmm. he was not around. I mean, it's not like I never saw him or anything, but years would go by, right? And so he had divorced my mother, and he would still occasionally see her, and he had left me, and he would still occasionally see me. So he was my mother's ex-husband, and he was my ex-father. And again, when I would say this to people, they'd be like, I got laughed at, or, or, or can people would be baffled, right? Yeah, because it's not the norm, right? Although it's accurate, right? Exactly. Because father is a noun, not a verb. So when people say, or when you say to me, but he's my father, right? Are you talking about loving, instructional, wise, consistent, helpful, virtuous, protective, all of that good stuff that goes on for years? No. (laughs) I mean, it's like calling a thief... An earner. Oh, he's just a taker. So when you put that, but he's my father. I think you really need to be clear on that distinction. If he acted like a father, then he's a father. Like father, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, technically, my father fathered me. But he didn't parent me. Yeah. And you're hoping that if your father changes, the past will hurt less. He'll grow a conscience 
so that you don't have to deal with your pain. And that is an illusion. Well, he created the pain. <laughs> he created the pain. He's not going to make it go away. He's most likely only going to make it worse, right? That is very true. Nothing fosters unhappiness more than the avoidance of legitimate suffering. There's not just a theory that there's some pretty significant studies that have found that people tend to be happiest when they accept unpleasant emotions. Because then you don't end up self-censoring. You don't end up splitting yourself, dividing yourself, setting yourself at war against yourself. All my emotions are welcome at the table. Everybody gets a voice. Everybody is essential. I don't have like the legitimate and the black market and the above ground and the underground and the police and the cops and the good and the bad. Everything within me is essential to my happiness. My anger, my regrets, my hostility, my frustration, all of the things that are considered negative that we naturally want to avoid are there to help us, right? You put your hand in a fire, it burns, you don't put your hand in the fire again, <laughs> right? If you have a little switch that turns off the burning, you're going to get singed to a crisp, right? And I have been, like, um, embracing my emotions more openly, um, but it's not easy. <laughs> Um, but I, I do feel more at ease when I do, um, let my emotions come to the surface. I, I feel less stressed. I feel, um, more like weight has been lifted off of me. Um, more of a clear conscience. Um, it's just like, I miss him and I can't help but miss him. And what do you miss? No, no. What do you miss? He, he has a good sense of humor. Um, um, that's really about it. <laughs> um, yeah, like he was there like in my life um, when I was a baby and growing up. And he was there when I graduated high school and things like that. Um, Not if I'm, he was drinking. He wasn't. Not really there, right? I mean, that's, doesn't drinking do that? I mean, just make you emotionally inaccessible and unpredictable? Yeah, it does. So he was there, absolutely. But was he parenting? No. He was not parenting. And that's painful. And, and look, Christina, I mean, agonizing, painful. The loss is interstellar in scope, right? Yeah, because, like, he also put me into foster care um, because I was acting out because of his drinking because um, I wanted his attention and he gave me, the like, the wrong kind of attention. <laughs> and I kind of still... But don't, don't listen. I mean, I, I don't interrupt you, but let's not laugh about this stuff, right? I mean, I know that was just a little, like, side laugh. But your father put you in foster care because you were difficult. And how old were you at this uh, age? 14, turning 15. And was your mother, your mother was still alive, I assume. Yeah, because you said you dropped out of college. That's much later, right? Uh, yeah, she, I'm 26. She passed when I was 23. So. Um, and uh, what did your mother have to say about you going into foster care? 
she wasn't in my life at the time. She was very abusive towards my sister and I, and I resented her for it for five years. I didn't really have anything to do with her. Um, so I made contact with her when I, um, when I came back to Toronto, cause I was put into a foster care in Keswick, which I didn't even know the place existed. I felt very abandoned. Um, I didn't know anybody there. Um, felt like I was and in how long, sorry to interrupt, but how long were you in foster care? Um, in Keswick, it was six months. And then in Toronto, it was until 18. And then I moved out at that age. So you basically didn't have much contact with your father from 14 to 18? Um, pretty much, yeah. Like we would have contact and I would see him, but it wasn't really like him being a parent. So. <sighs> so. I'm so incredibly sorry. What an unbelievable burden to carry that your father basically wanted nothing to do with me, right? <laughs> like he yeah, wanted, wanted virtually nothing to do with you from 14 onwards. Did he tell the people who he was getting you arranged in Foscare, did he tell them that he was a drinker? I don't think so. I found out that I was going to care the day of. <laughs> that was, I was very angry with that. Um, I didn't even know where I was going. Like I'd gone to the car and she wouldn't tell me where I was going until we got on the highway. And then she told me and I'm like, what, where, <laughs> who? Oh, your mother drove you? No, um, no a, social, a social worker, sorry. A children's aid. Oh, man. So, uh, so without warning, you were basically pulled out of your home. And dumped in a place where you didn't know anyone. Yeah, and my sister and I were separated. God almighty. Because, and was there behavior that your father, if I was talking to your father, what would he say about your behavior that prompted this? He would state that I was trying to break him and his partner apart. Um, which uh, maybe I was because he sexually assaulted me. <laughs> And I didn't want, like, I didn't like that because... Wait, sorry. We got a few too many penises in the conversation here. <laughs> um, so you mean his gay partner sexually assaulted you? Yes. I'm, that's so gender sexual preference bending, I don't even know where to start. Um, so your father took up with a gay man invited him into your house, and then the gay man sexually assaulted you, thinking you were a man? I don't know. And this is on... Was he bi? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, because I don't mean to... Uh, I have no idea. The, uh, I have no idea. I just know he was drunk at the time. But that's no excuse <laughs> um, for what he did. And it was interesting because when I um, I told a teacher who I like was kind of like us like a second mom to me at the time as my mom wasn't in my life. And I didn't realize that she would have to tell children's aid. So then children's aid came and my dad pulled me into the kitchen and he's like, I wish you would have told me and I wish it would have happened to me instead. But then once everyone in the neighborhood found out, cause we all like, we're all like kind of a family, um, like neighborhood. And he made me write a letter stating that didn't happen in order to have a relationship with him. Um, which I totally erased from my mind when I did it because I couldn't believe that he would make me do such a thing in the first place. 
So, so sorry, I just want to make sure I understood that. So your father made you write a letter to the man who sexually assaulted you? A letter to him and to his partner stating that it didn't happen um, so that they could keep on record, I guess. I don't know the whole reason behind it, but I know the reason was no, the reason was because if they got charged, then they would have some defense, right? Yes. And I was only 13 at the time. So. And your father decided to stay with the man who sexually assaulted his daughter. They are still together. Yes. And and he's a diabetic and he's an alcoholic. So I even told him, like told him that he's killing himself and he called me a stupid child and that I don't know anything, but wait, you're sorry. Your father's partner is a diabetic and an alcoholic. Yeah. So go diabetes. Yeah. So God almighty. I mean, so your father brings in a, hang on. So your father brings in a man who sexually assaults you, makes you write a letter to your rapist or your sexual assaulter saying it didn't happen, stays with the man, dumps you into foster care. Wow. I didn't look at it like that. <laughs> wow. I mean, tell me something. Are you fucking kidding me? No, unfortunately. But he's my father, you said, right? He's got a good sense of humor. You know, one time Hitler did a little jig when they finished invading Austria. Okay, dancer. Guess he's an all right guy. I mean, are you kidding me? This fucking monster of a testicle machine? And you miss him? I love him too. <laughs> I don't know. No. No. No, 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 no. You don't get a you do not get to come on this show and use that word which I speak to my daughter and my wife and my friends. You do not get to come on this show and use that word for that man. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. That word is the exact opposite of what happened to you, Christina. That is not love. That deserves no love. That deserves no loyalty. And I'm sorry that nobody has seen fit to tell you this before. But you cannot use the word love to a man who forces, who brings a rapist into your life, forces you to subjugate yourself to that rapist, and then has you dragged off to foster care because you were violated by his partner. No, 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 no. You cannot use that word. You cannot use that word. That word becomes like shit in your mouth if you use it with your father. Because you need to keep that word for someone who acts virtuously. You need to keep that word safe and clean and pure so that you can speak it to somebody who acts virtuously, who loves you, who protects you, who is curious about you, who empathizes with you. Not somebody 
who continues to fuck your rapist. I'm sorry to be harsh. No. But that is a very precious word for me. And you cannot be Stockholmed enough to think that that word applies to this man. And you're right, and it's painful that you're right. <laughs> Keep I've... that word safe. Keep that word for safe for a man who deserves it. But don't, don't foul it up with this monstrous visage. I don't know what to say. I'm kind of emotional well, right now. Feeling. feeling sad. What are you feeling? I'm feeling sad. Yes. Um, hurt. <laughs> I feel um, that, yeah, he he has no right to have my love at all, and that's unfortunate. Um, and it's just painful because I have fought so hard to have a family, to not have one. Um, and I, I just feel so lonely. Like, I have pets, but they don't – they're just pets. Like, I don't have – Someone to hold me, someone to comfort me, someone to say that they love me. I lost that at 23. And yeah, I have my sister, but I just, you I, don't, I don't have anyone to confide in. Go on. Like, that's why I have such an anger inside of me, because it's just I have so much to be angry about. Yes, you do. And, and that has cost me friendships. And I just want to try and deal with my past and move on and try and find healthy methods to release my anger so that it's not damaging to the people that I care about. I think you can do that. And let me tell you this. I, I feel intense admiration for your honesty. And I thank you that for is, yours as well. No, that is, that is brave. That is, Noble, that is heroic, genuinely heroic, right? There should be like Marvel superhero comics called Emotional Honesty. I would love to be a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> you are at the moment. You are a superhero. Thank you. Well. You know, you did something highly provocative <laughs> to me just now. You don't know that, probably, but you will when I mention it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you were in tears uh, about uh, your loss. Uh, you no one to hold you, no one to love you, no one to listen. You said you lost that when you were 23, right? Well, I think, like, my mom and I weren't close either. And like I said, she abused me when I was growing up. So 
she never hugged me. She did. Wow. She didn't want to hug me when I was growing up. She would push me away. And she was very abusive um, verbally as well, say with my father. But our relationship did get closer when she was dying. (laughs) Go figure. Um, But it wasn't the closest that I craved for or longed for. (sighs) How did you get closer when she was dying? Um, Well, I was in school at the time. And she sat me down with her counselor who was in her life for since I was a baby. And she told me that um, she had cancer and that she had less than a year to live. And when she told me this, we hugged for the longest time. And that's the longest hug I've ever received from her in my life. And then... Um, I think I was living with her at the time. And so as I was taking care of her, we got to spend more time together, especially when I quit school and my job and I was there with her every single day. But at times we would argue and fight and yell at each other. Um, It was a very, very uh, nightmare of a time to say the least uh, because I would try and inform her about choices of health and like different routes to take. And she was just stuck in her own ways and she wanted to believe the medical doctors and not believe anything else. And that's what caused her to die. Um, And she never, she tried to protect me. I know that by not telling me everything. So when, when she had her first surgery, I didn't know it was life-threatening until after. Um, and to see her afterwards was so surreal. It, tied up to the bed with tubes everywhere. And then I had to, um, she had gangrene, so uh, I had to be the person to sign off on her getting her toes removed, which I did not want to be in that position but I signed off on it anyways. She was sedated. I kept telling them that that she needs to be woken up so that she can make this decision. I was 21 at the time. Um, uh, So, but she thanked me for it because she was able to walk afterwards. But then that's when they found out that she had cancer and they couldn't do anything but chemotherapy and radiation, which just made her lose weight. And then it made her not walk. And then, she started to have, like, she started to lose um, her control of, have, like, bowel movements and stuff like that. So then she went to uh, palliative care and died within a week. Um, but, yeah, um, I don't know where I was really going with this, but I just, like, I've been longing for someone to be in my life, like 
a mother figure or a father figure, and I haven't had that from either of my parents. And it's a painful it, thing to it's a painful thing to acknowledge. <laughs> did your mother know that your father's boyfriend sexually assaulted you? Yes, and she was very upset about it. When did she find out? Um, she found out when I started making contact with her. I think I was, what, 15, 16 at the time. Um, she never really liked, like, my mom and my dad, oh, my gosh. Um, they bashed each other in front of my sister and I. So, like, my mom would bash my dad in front of me and, and my sister. And then when we saw my dad, he would do the same thing about my mom. So they never really liked each other, and I was grateful that they got a divorce because they fought a lot. Um, but, yeah. But um, she didn't really do anything about it, but she never really liked to begin with. So, Right. Did um, why, why couldn't you stay with her? When you were 14, if your father didn't want you in the house with your rapist? I wasn't speaking with her at the time. Um, I had but, uh, no... She would have been informed. She was your mother, right? I didn't talk to her. I had no... No, but the, the social workers, were, I, I assume, would have had to inform her. I don't know about that. I'm not sure, but... I don't think they can just move a child when there's another parent in the neighborhood to... Right? I don't know how it worked. I really... I don't. Like I said, I found out that I was going to foster care the day of it occurring. I don't know how. But I would assume that you went into foster care because your mother did not take you. I didn't think of it like that. That thought never. I think they have to go to extended family first. Again, I'm no expert, but. Either am I. <laughs> I think that uh, they have to be refused by extended family first before the foster care becomes an option. It would make sense, yes, but I'm not, like, you and I, I don't know, I'm not certain, but it does make sense, and that's, like, I don't hold, I don't hold any, like, anger or anything towards my mom for saying no, whatever, like, I didn't even think of it until you said that, that. so. Um, Wait, you don't hold any anger at your mother for not taking you away from a house with a rapist and away from foster care? No, because I wasn't, I didn't have any connection with her at the time. I didn't want to have any connection with her, so. Oh, I don't know. Listen, I mean, if she, if if you'd have been told it's your mom or foster care. Well, I didn't have a choice, but I, I probably no, but would if have. if you had been told. I probably would have picked my mom, yes. Right, so. I just want to, again, I don't know, obviously, the ins and outs, but uh, I would be very surprised if they could just take you off to foster care when you had another custodial parent in in town. That's a fair point, but usually with the foster care system, they don't like to um, place children in an abusive environment. And my mom was very abusive. Um, right. until I moved out, um, until I moved with my dad at the age of 12. 
But did you ever, when you were talking to her while she was dying and when you were taking care of her, did she talk at all about the time that you were in foster care and whether she knew or what she did about it or? Um, she did tell me she knew about it. Um, she didn't tell me like, well, she told me that she felt like she wanted, she wanted to take me, but, um, at the time she, she couldn't, um, mainly because I wasn't talking with her. And then also she was kind of going through her own, I guess, stuff like sorting out her own past and stuff from what she told me um, when I reconnected with her at the age of 18. Her dad was a cop who raped her um, and his cop friends got involved as well. Um, you mean so, in the rape? Yes. Of her? Yes. Um, she was, and she was an only child. Her mom didn't do anything about it. Her mom was very, was actually glad that was happening to her and like happening to her daughter instead of her. Um, she was very abused by both parents and isolated. Uh, she, she grew up on a farm, so she didn't have anyone to really go to. Um, and anyone like no one would probably believe her anyways, because her dad's caught. <laughs> Um, when she told me this, I was very, like, I understood immediately, like, why she had so much anger. Um, but I still, like, was anger, angry with her that she took it out on my sister and I for no reason. Um, but it, it opened my eyes to understand her more. And that's, like, that's something I tried to do with my father. Um, and he just... Sh sh like completely closed that door. So at least my mom was willing to open up to that. I know it was very painful for her to do that. So, um, it is, um, it is a uh, relief to know the traumas our parents experienced, right? Yeah, it is. It, um, it explains a lot. I find. Yeah. It, it gives some, it gives some perspective. It gives, some sense of uh, causality. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's what I wanted with my dad, because I knew he didn't have a, a great upbringing as well. Like from what he shared, his dad died at the age of 10 and he became the father figure as he was the oldest. And then he's, um, he's Italian. So, um, and he knew he was gay since he was born and growing up in an Italian Christian home, that is not acceptable. So like having all these, oh, it's, a, it's a sin. So, yes. Right. And um, so growing up with that and then being the like father, like the head of the house, I guess you would say was not pleasant. And from what um, he told me, his mom didn't treat him well. I don't know in what aspect, but um, I don't know. So, but he would like it, once I he once I tried to get more personal with him and more like like asking questions he would lash out and yell and insult me and then make me cry and all that stuff and I'm like okay <laughs> can't talk about this so um. right yeah and of course um, I don't know you you said that you're well I mean whether your mother had lifestyle choices, but uh, for victims of child abuse, uh, cancer rates are significantly higher. It's mm. just the gift that keeps on giving. 
when you have a terrible childhood. Didn't know so that. it's like probably the, the cop got her eventually, right? Yeah, that's what she said. Like when she found out that she got cancer in her um, cervix area, she's she automatically blamed her father uh, for that. And she wasn't like she couldn't like um, give birth naturally. She had to have C-sections um, because of that. So. Oh, because of the damage from the rape as a child? Yeah. Yeah, for a lot of people, cancer is the noose, it's the final noose of the abusers that gets thrown from the grave, beyond the grave sometimes. Well, I know you battled with it as well, so. Hmm. Well, so yeah, you've got some reason to be angry, um, huge reason to be angry. It, it's always chilling to me the degree to which these patterns repeat, right? Your mother was assaulted and raped as a child. You were assaulted as a child. It is um, it is just chilling how there's this damn goddamn photocopier with nothing but blood for ink that just keeps imprinting like a boot on the face of human potential generation after generation. Now, it sounds like you are ready, willing, and able to put a stop to this, right? Yes, because yes. Um, I, I would like to try the non-aggression principle. It's, it's a struggle, I'm not going to lie, um, because I have so much anger built up, and that's why I would like to, like, I... I work out, I go for walks, I write, I draw, I try won't, and... No, won't do it, won't do it. Won't I try it. and release it. It will help, I'll, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, it will help, but it won't do it. What do you will? know what's under the anger? Oh, pain and hurt. Sorrow. Yes. A anger, like the anger that covers sorrow gives us the illusion of power. But it's like feeling strong because you can rattle the bars of your cell. So the anger is, in this instance, obviously incredibly justified by the suffering that these people put you through. But underneath... And this doesn't mean like the, the, the anger is false and the sorrow is true. They're both true. But the anger that acts out is the anger that hasn't found its proper mark. You know, if have you ever done archery, bows, arrows? I tried and I, I, I flunked miserably. <laughs> All right. But you know, like if you shoot the arrow, it goes thunk right deep into the bullseye, it doesn't bounce anywhere, right? Yes, that's true. Right, but if you're not standing in front of the target, but you're standing like mostly to the side and you shoot the arrow at the target, it's just going to bounce off, right? Mm -hmm. It's just going to bounce off and keep flying and hit someone else because you're not pointing at the target and aiming at the bullseye. It just skims off, ricochets off, bounces somewhere else, right? 
You know, like if you take a gun and you shoot, you stand on the side of a boat and you pull the trigger, the gun, the bullet goes straight in the water, right? Mm-hmm. But if you stand on the shore and you hold your gun pointing out flat at the water, if you shoot, the water can actually cause, the surface tension can cause the bullet to bounce up because you're not aiming straight, right? So whatever we don't aim straight at ricochets off and can really harm others. Now, parents don't want us to aim our anger at them. And we as children find it impossible to aim our anger at our caregivers. It's suicidal, right? Yeah, very much so. So you experienced and received incredible harm from your caregivers, but you could not aim the arrow of anger at the bullseye, at the justified source of your suffering. Oh, it wasn't allowed. <sighs> you couldn't. None of us could. Yeah. You can't. Any kids who did that, well, let's just say those genes didn't last too long, right? <laughs> so then we become adults. And if we want to escape the past, to escape being trapped in the past, you can't escape the past. It's <laughs> your past. But the great challenge is you've got to stand out. In front of that bullseye, you got to draw your arrow and you got to sink it deep in the bullseye. And the angrier the parent, the more unacceptable the anger in the child. Because the parent who's angry knows that the anger of the child is an inevitable and healthy response to their own anger and abuse. The Nazi God who sees the Jew crying shoots the Jew because the Jew is making the Nazi God feel bad, right? And that's, I guess, what I'm struggling with is because I, I, can't, I can't direct my anger to the bullseye, as you say. Um, <laughs> well, one of them, one of my parents is dead and then the other one just doesn't want anything to do with me. No, 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 no. no. The, I, I said bullseye. I deliberately chose something passive, not a duel. Death is no barrier to legitimate anger. Because, as you know, deep down in your immensely strong heart, you know, Christina, that you will never, ever, ever get what you needed as a child, right? It will never happen. You will never, ever get the sweet nectar of good parenting as a child because you are an adult. If you didn't receive enough to eat as a child and you're six inches shorter as an adult because you were malnourished, there is no amount of adult food that would give you those six inches back, right? Correct. So the, how do I, like, overcome this then? Like, how do I move past this? That's my struggle. No, no, no. No, no you, you're, as most people do, you are trying to skate into a list and away from an experience. 
right? You're trying to say, well, give me a list. Give me a laundry list. Give me, a, give me something to do, right? Everyone says that. You, you hear this in the show all the time, right? Yeah, that's true. I'm trying to connect with someone about a really important emotional truth and like, yeah, but what do I do about it? Give me something to do, right? It's human doing, not human being. Don't give me anything I have to actually sit with and absorb and accept. Don't give me a lived emotional experience in the moment. Give me a plan, right? Because a plan takes you out of yourself and engages the bullshit brain. The bullshit brain is the distraction brain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fine brain, don't get me wrong, but when it comes to deep lived, particularly childhood emotional experiences, it's worse than useless. It's a massive distraction. I'm starting to feel upset. Quick, give me an iPad. I'm going to go look <laughs> stuff up about being upset. It's like you're just doing that to avoid, right? That's a good point. So when I tell you, because you'll listen back to this and you'll hear me, you'll hear yourself say things that will be completely shocking to you now. But you cried because you said there's no one to hold you now, right? Mm-hmm. And you said that ended when I was 23. I don't believe that's the real experience. No, it's not. Right. As a child, you desperately hungered and thirsted for that connection, that love, that acceptance, that curiosity. You know, when you're the victim of child abuse, all you do is focus on everyone else all the time. That's so true. All you think about is where the next disaster, the next abuse, the next hit, the next tragedy, the next screaming, the next, you name it, the next instability is coming from. And you become nothing but a skin full of eyeballs, constantly looking around, hypervigilant, staring, looking, scanning. You cannot compose a haiku with a tiger in the house because you're kind of thinking of the tiger, right? If you know it's somewhere. And so you're focused on other people and you're focused on attempting to manage other people and you're focusing on attempting to minimize the damage other people can do you. Not on what you need, not on what you deserve, not on what your experience is, right? And for the entirety of the rest of your life, Christina, your childhood will never be any different than it was. That loss, that tragedy, that which was stolen from you, it will never, ever change. It will never be like... Childhood, yeah. Sorry, your childhood is a museum. The exhibits never change. The tour never changes. There's nothing new. Nothing is taken away. Sorry, go ahead. No, and I and I have acknowledged that that I can't change my childhood. I'm trying to change myself now. I'm trying to break habits that are not healthy, um, like losing control when I'm angry. Um, when someone insults me, I tend to play right back into their hands and insult them back. Um, 
which you didn't like your mom taking out her childhood on you, right? Yes. So. And I don't like doing that. I don't like that part of me because it's not, it's not the right thing to do and it's not healthy. And it's just, I, I'm trying to like acknowledge that. And then like, yeah, but like, you just, you just give me words like you're reading off the back of a self-help book, right? <sighs> I know, I know it's not going to be healthy. I know it's not going to make you happy. I, I get all of that. I get all of that. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if you mourn what you lose, you will lose your rage. The rage is a desperate desire for your life to be different. To not want it. To not want what you have, to not want want what you have inherited, to not want the temper, to not want the discontent, to not want the retaliatory emotions. You don't want any of this stuff. Don't you wish you could just reach in, peel that shit out, and throw it in a sewage grate, right? That would be the simple way, yes. That would be the simple way. Give me <laughs> give me some drug. Give me some thing. No, no give me drugs, some no process. Drugs, yeah, shave my head and throw me in a... A V mask, right? And and I'm all set, right? But the reality is that I think that the rage and the discontent comes from a desperate desire to not have to deal with this stuff, to not have to accept it, to not have to accept the sorrow. And I believe, and it's been my experience, that once you accept that it was an infinite tragedy that can never be changed, that's when you can start to leave it behind. Like, let me give you an analogy. So there are horror movies where the heroine dies, right? Now, if you thought that every time you watch that movie... You could change the ending. You could save her. Wouldn't you want to keep watching that movie and keep trying different things? Yeah. In other words, you know, when you're a kid, you, you yell, yell at the movie. Look behind you, right? <laughs> you yeah. go for help. I'll follow the bloody footprints into the cellar. <laughs> and once you get that your childhood is a movie that can't be changed, the desire to rewatch it diminishes. Right? You want your childhood to change and you want your father to change it for you. Your mother can't because she's dead, but that's why you have a hunger for your father to be a better person because that way the movie can change. And that keeps you watching the movie again and again and again. Trying all these different voodoo spells and dance moves and yells and incantations and candles and rituals. Trying to get a different ending. But because your childhood is over, 
there will never be a different ending. There could have been a different ending when you were 16 or 14 or 8 or 10, maybe 17 and a half, I don't know. But now you're in your 20s. The movie will never change. And no one is coming in to rewrite the ending and there will never be any reshooting. Cameramen have all dispersed. The actors are all moved on to other projects. They've all aged. (laughs) They can't play those roles anymore. And the movie will never change because shooting is done. Everyone's gone. Now, if you watch that movie knowing that it can never change, you can experience the movie in a very real way. Because if you think you can change it, then you don't experience it with sorrow. You experience it with anxiety and a desire to affect the outcome, right? You are so right. But now you know that it can never change. If your father gets struck by lightning and grows a conscience the size of Worf's forehead tomorrow, not going to happen, but if it did, that movie of your childhood would still remain absolutely unaltered. And if you know you can't change it and no one is coming in to rescue and rewrite the ending or anything like that, then, I think and only then, can you watch the movie as a tragedy, not an illusory opportunity for change. I didn't think of it like that. (laughs) Make it a movie I can still change. Make it a movie, Dad, I can still change. Come back into my life. Be different. Rewrite the ending. I don't want to watch this movie. Keep staying the same. I want it to change. I need it to change. And that tension causes a great amount of frustration and anger and rage. Yeah. Make it different. Make it different. Your fight and flight mechanism is kicking in because you think you can change stuff, but you can't. Exactly. Because I would you can't. Because I would try and try and try and try, right? Like over and over yeah. to like make him happy and prove to him, you know, that I'm not this I like this idea that he had of me. But Right. And I think it's that kind of stress that can cause cancer. In my, again, obviously ridiculously amateur opinion, but I think that that constant striving for things to be different than what they are, you know, it takes a mighty heart and a strong mind to accept the world as it is. Not just our personal world, but the world as a whole as it is. We constantly look at the real world and we recoil like we're hit with electricity. And to take a deep breath... And to say, this is the world. This is where people are. This is what people think or claim to think. But the world is what it is. We can do a little bit to affect it. We can nudge it here and there. But in order to nudge it, we must first accept it. We must look at something as being impervious to change to truly understand it before we try to change it. And that acceptance that your childhood is a movie, not a video game, where you can beat the boss, try it again, respawn, try it again, respawn. No, it is a movie. 
it cannot change. That, I think, is freedom from the stress and tension and rage of desperately trying to change something which you cannot change. Which is not your life in the future, but you... We so desperately want the past to be different that we live there. Trying to will differences to the inevitable. But at least I have control of the future. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I know that was all pretty abstract. And, you know, obviously I strongly recommend, uh, as I usually do in these situations, I think as I always do, you know, therapists is is fantastic. John Bradshaw's books um, are very good. I have been through counseling um, before from 12 to 21. Um, I would like to still be in counseling. It's just um, because of financial. No, no, I get it. Yeah, but I mean, there's still stuff you can do. And um, right, uh, I think I mean I think Alice Miller is 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 very good in in these areas, as is Faye Snyder S N Y D E R. But um, I hope that that helps. I mean I, I just I hope that that uh, when you listen to this again, I mean you've I think you've come in a an amazing distance, really over an hour or an hour and a bit. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, it really has opened um, new doors of looking at things and to really. Um, to really like, like you said, look at my life as a movie and embrace the emotions that come from it and hopefully be able to move on. Um, I didn't think of it like that. And like I said, thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me. It really has impacted me a lot. Um, It's a weird paradox. Like I cannot save the child that I was, but I can use the child that I was to save the adult I can be. That should be a quote. <laughs> yeah. Meme that mofo, right? All right. Well, listen, keep, will you keep us posted? Let us know how it's going. Of course. And uh, a huge, huge, huge props and kudos. Uh, you have a deep and fierce, in a good way, heart. And... Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm overcome with admiration for for your honesty and for your willingness to, you know, step into that that furnace of of openness. Thank you for allowing me to do that. All right. Well, I hope to hear from you again. Uh, thanks again, everyone, so much. This is how we roll to help us roll bigger and faster and wider. Ah, you know, I'm not going to do a donation pitch at the end of that call, so forget about it. (laughs) But uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. We will be chatting with you on the night of Saturdayness. So take care. Have a great night. Thank you, Michael, as well. Thank you, Mike, as well, as always. Thanks, Christina. Have a good night, everyone. Good night.